This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 40. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, thanks again for joining us this week. Yeah, happy to be here as always. This is uh, an exciting show as always. We've got some great guests uh, for you today. And as a reminder, we have new episodes out every Wednesday. You can find us on YouTube as well as all the usual podcast audio platforms. So be sure to subscribe to us. Uh, this episode, episode number 40, we're going to cover a few different things. We've got three main segments per our usual format. Uh, the first segment, we're going to talk a bit about some digital transformation news and trends. Uh, one in particular that's of interest that you want to stick around for is we're going to talk about the whole Amazon versus Walmart uh, e-commerce transformation debate. So that'll be a, a good uh, one of many topics or one of a few topics we'll talk about in our opening segment. And then later in the show, we're going to have Braden Gerbig from Third Stage Consulting on the show. And he's going to speak with us about three different digital transformation case studies. And what we wanted to do in the case of Braden is have him on the show and talk about what he and some of his consulting teams are doing right now, sort of in progress for a lot of organizations that were helping through their digital transformations. So we picked out three case studies of active clients to talk through what the the good and the bad and the ugly is, what some of the challenges are, some of the early lessons learned, and sort of applying that to organizations that are about to go through a transformation. So that'll be in the second segment. And then later in the show, we are going to have a discussion uh, with a group of us, actually. It's more of a, a panel discussion that uh, includes a company called Flexential, which is a uh, hosting data and cloud provider that uh, we'll, we'll have on the show. And we're going to talk about some of the uh, options you have and some of the flexibility you have in terms of hosting and cloud options. And uh, we're going to talk about hosting data, cloud, change management, all the stuff that uh, from a technical and, and people change perspective uh, ties into a digital transformation or enables a digital transformation, I should say. So uh, th- that's what to expect here in today's episode. But before we get to those two segments that I talked about, our two sets of guests, uh, let's talk about some recent trends in the uh, digital transformation space. What have you got for us this week? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start with um, the Walmart versus Amazon kind of war of the titans in e-commerce that you teased there. So basically what we've seen, obviously, since we've gone through a pandemic that has really pushed and boosted the popularity of e-commerce, we've seen Walmart really grow into that space. And it's been an interesting battle between the two because obviously Amazon still owns the digital kind of space in in that its its e-commerce numbers are well into the 400 billions and Walmart slowly is kind of developing that piece of it but what we've seen too is since Walmart has built out their e-commerce e-commerce services as well as kind of their legacy and essential grocery category they've seen the shifting of offering those two hybrid pathways 
to consumers as kind of taking away a lot of the market share in that industry from Amazon. So I kind of wanted to get your reaction to that as we now see Amazon plans to build out physical grocery footprints or locations. So you kind of see that dipping into the two different um, industry places. So I just wanted to, as an e-commerce specialist, kind of get your your reaction to that. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's sort of a tale of two different business strategies that they've had over the years. I mean, Walmart's strength was always its its physical brick and mortar footprint. And Amazon's uh, strength was obviously more the e-commerce so now it's interesting to see they're both sort of trying to go at each other in those ways. You know, Amazon moving into brick and mortar and then Walmart moving further and further into e-commerce, which, by the way, I know Walmart's been for close to a decade now pushing pretty aggressively into e-commerce. I remember they bought uh, several years ago, they bought a company called Jet. It's like a Jet. Uh, Jet was a uh, e-commerce provider and they bought the company basically to acquire all of their e-commerce and their retail capabilities. Um and I always wonder, you know, the Amazon strategy, I, I'm a little leery of, I guess, the, as far as the brick and mortar aspect of it, I, I've, I only have one data point to base it on, which is I went to a, an Amazon store recently and it just wasn't, oh. it was just kind of weird. Um, it just didn't feel right. Like I, it didn't, yeah. for me mentally, it didn't connect. Like being in a store didn't feel the same as buying from Amazon online and I had no desire to really shop there. Uh, but I just went there to do a return, which was, I guess was kind of nice, but um so I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I think, honestly, I think that, you know, Amazon is a pretty formidable competitor, obviously, but Walmart, I think, might have the stronger uh, competitive position in that they are such a massive company and they're, the you know, one of one of the largest, if not the largest uh, global retailer uh, in the country. And, and that size and scale and that hybrid model they're building, I think, is pretty... Um, I think that's going to be a good thing longer term because I think there's always going to be a place for the physical shopping and customer experience. Um, and so if Amazon can get up to par close to where Amazon is in terms of e-commerce capabilities, I would think they'd have the advantage. And it's going to take Amazon, I would think, a lot longer to build out the the uh, capabilities Walmart has from a brick and mortar perspective. So it might be run counter to what is cool to say what most might think, but that's that's what I think. I think Walmart probably has the advantage there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so interesting because we advise our clients a lot in our community here at Third Stage to optimize the customer experience and to really put that in the forefront when we're talking about customer journey. So here we have a company like Amazon that has one touch point, right, which they do really well. It's an, you go online, you can get your stuff within you know, a couple of days, two day shipping the next day, those types of things. They even have partners like um, like Whole Foods that you can get grocery deliveries. Uh, but Walmart, on the other hand, they have an in-store experience that's already established, right? It's not a new customer behavior. They also have now an e-commerce platform. And then they also have the option to get you a full-blown grocery distribution which if you're a mom and dad and grocery shopper, you know that, that that established opportunity to get your groceries to your door the same day, it, it's just next level. So I, I think when we see kind of the launch of things like the subscription services and that model for Walmart Plus, we'll kind of continue to see the growth in that area. And good for them, you know, that they're able kind of to at least compete 
um, in that space. But the focus on customer experience is kind of a theme of today's trending topics because recently Skift too, which is a um, an analytics-based platform, did a study on all of the businesses that have gone through a transformation within Asia Pacific. So we have obviously a, a local presence at third stage in the Asia Pacific market with our Brisbane office. So I wanted to share just kind of some findings from, from that insight survey. Um, and just for example, about 40% of executives in the region, Asia Pacific, um, said that deepening their existing customer relationships was among the top three business goal, goal, goals, excuse me, um, when going through the pandemic. Because what this experience has been for them is basically kind of Asia specifically was kind of the epicenter of the pandemic and they needed to adapt really quickly, even rebranding kind of their hospitality industry to kind of match that. So I wanted to see if you had any examples or since we you work closely with our Asia Pacific team over there, if you've kind of seen this new customer experience of additional AI, machine learning, hospitality growth, um, and then also just less personal touch points, but in the same time, creating a safe relationship with customers. If that's something you've seen kind of trending in your client work as well on the digital strategy side. Yeah, for sure. And it, not just with customer experience, but also with uh, employee experience. That was another thing that sort of popped in my mind as you were talking is it, it's that whole self-service model, you know, whether you're an employee or a customer is becoming more and more prevalent. I, I do wonder though, um, you know, if the pendulum might be swinging too far, or if, if it's sort of an overcorrection to past inefficiencies and past uh, lost opportunities to better use technology, if maybe the pendulum's just sort of swinging way over to the side of total self-service and, you know, less human interaction and that sort of thing. And, you know, in, in the short term, that's probably okay, just given where we are with the pandemic and still, you know, spotty limitations on social interaction or physical interaction uh, throughout the world. But longer term, I, I wonder, you know, it gets back to that Walmart versus Amazon question or debate, which is, do people, you know, are people still going to crave that human interaction? And even though it's less efficient, even though theoretically you can make more money or make a higher margin, if you just automate that human interface, do your customers really get a better experience by having a cool technological experience? And maybe rather than thinking of it as, you know, just one avenue or, or the avenue to create that customer experience, it should be a way to augment it. So you have great human interaction, but you also have great technology to augment that to where you have, you have options. You could, you could have human inter interaction when you want it, but you could also have technology interaction when you, when you want to, you know, not interface with people necessarily. Um, so I think it's, it's probably, you know, appealing to different people at different times in their lives and uh, that sort of thing. So I don't know that it's a one size fits all thing. I think it's just each retailer, each organization has to find the right balance that's sort of fits that long-term trend. Yeah. And so that brings me, um, that's a great segue because I had a real specific question for you about this specific transformation. Because I know when you talk about um, cloud ERP or those types of migrations to a cloud-based system, you're cautious about it. You know, you you don't kind of fall into the line of it is the silver bullet, it's the next big thing. 
that the you know that we need to be kind of slow in that transition so this article and this study specifically was talking about um, the advantages of cloud computing and really moving your business onto that type of strategy when it comes to um, you know paying for services the elasticity and the ability to kind of scale up and then scale down too when it comes to cloud provisions or what they need to meet on demand. So I wondered if you kind of had that same sort of, well, that's a great opportunity, but we don't need to put all of our eggs in one basket when it comes to those those transformations. Yeah, that's a interesting, interesting question. Uh, I'm trying to formulate a good, uh, concise response to. Um, so I, I, I've, like you said, I have mixed feelings about cloud. I don't deny that that's where the market is headed. I don't deny that uh, software vendors are all in on the whole cloud movement, and a lot of customers are, and that, that those numbers of adoption are increasing over time. But I do think that there are costs associated with those advantages you just talked about, being able to scale up and down and uh, being able to do upgrades more quickly and having more immediate access to cutting edge technology, you, you, you only get that through the cloud. You're not going to get that through on-premise, you know, sort of the historic on-premise model. So that's all good stuff. But what I think the dark, dirty little secret of the cloud technology space is that costs, that costs you money. And I know cloud vendors will adamantly disagree and say, nope, that's not true. It's cheaper to deploy a cloud is absolutely not true. It's, it's more expensive to deploy a cloud technology, um, even when you factor in the fact that you don't need as much infrastructure to support it. Infrastructure, quite frankly, is a lot, is really cheap now compared to what it was 10 or 20 years ago. So that's not a material savings for a lot of organizations. You could argue that we can cut headcount and that sort of thing as a result of cloud. The reality is most organizations don't, um, don't cut headcount to go along with, with cloud technology. They don't see that benefit that's being touted. And then the other side of it is that, uh, you know, that ongoing subscription cost is pretty material. And there's a lot of escalators and hidden kickers in those contracts that cause those costs to go up over time. So I think, you know, at some point in the near future, we're going to see sort of a day of reckoning where a lot of organizations are going to look up and say, well, what's going on here with my IT costs? My cloud costs are out of control. They keep going up. As I grow as an organization, I'm kind of shackled and locked in. So back to your point, you know, having all your eggs in one basket, there's a risk there and there's a cost there associated with that. It sounds, I think it sounds a lot better in theory and it's a great sales and marketing message for the, for the software vendors, but the reality, the day-to-day -day practicality of cloud, I think there's a lot of hidden warts that uh, the industry doesn't necessarily want you to see, but you, you should see it before you, you know, at least know, be aware of it as you, as you go into a cloud transformation. Yeah, absolutely. That's all great insights and, and some big considerations. I wanted to ask you about um, culture when it comes to kind of these more regional based transformations, specifically with our Asia Pacific clients, they're more used to kind of that tr technology driven strategy um, than say, you know, our, our Northern American or European based clients. Um, so when it comes to a transformation in, in changing on more of like a hyper technology, AI driven machine learning side, what, what's the cultural aspect that you need to consider when still, when still trying to build a customer relationship? That's a great question. I mean, you, you mentioned Asia Pacific and when I've, the time I've spent in Asia Pacific, I found that 
more than any other part of the world that I've, I've ever been to, I find that the high touch human interaction, especially on the services side of things and hospitality and leisure and things like that, I think it's strongest, at least for the places I've been in the world. Asia Pacific has, in my opinion, the best service, the best uh, human interaction. So, you know, the question is for, for, you know, speaking of culture, is do you want to use technology to water down that culture and that sort of historic advantage or competitive advantage that, that a lot of uh, Asia Pacific organizations have? Or do you want to use it to augment that human experience to where you could use machine learning to make sure that you're providing the right kind of service or the right kind of offerings to the right customers at the right time, but still not losing that human interaction, but rather using the AI or machine learning to help direct human behavior and human interactions a little bit more strategically. So I think those are maybe two different ways of looking at it. I think in, in the U.S., you know, the American culture, I think, is very focused on efficiency and reducing cost and um, certainly getting the customer what they want when they want it is, is you know, uh, cost effectively as possible. But we're not, I think we underestimate at times the value of that human interaction that like we talked about before. Whereas in some parts of the world, like Asia Pacific, it's it's the opposite. I think it's it's they'll they'll take the inefficiencies in the name of having a better customer interaction and you know, labor costs aren't as high, you know, relatively speaking, compared to other countries. So it's not as big of a deal to be somewhat inefficient in some of these countries. So they can invest that time and money in in great, you know service and customer experience and whatnot. So I think your, to your point, culture and understanding who you are and how technology can best fit within that is going to look different for different parts of different parts of the world and different cultures as well. Yeah. So it sounds like there's some balance, right, to optimizing and prioritizing digital analytics and still looking at it through a customer facing lens and understanding how that's important to your community, whether it's an, an industry um, competitive advantage or just an, an overall um, cultural aspect that's important to um, determine your approach. So I think yeah. that's and I think the thing that, sorry to interrupt you, but I think no, the thing that, that sort of uh, gets us to the right answer or the thing to not lose sight of is what, you know, what does a customer think? What is your customer, whether it's your, if you're a for-profit uh, right. company, it's your, it's your end customer. If you're, if you're a government entity or a nonprofit, it could be your internal or other stakeholders, but just understanding what the expectations are and what's going to make for a better experience for them. Cause different people are going to have different answers and different cultures and companies. And even within the same company or the same customer base, you're going to have different answers. So just making sure you're focused on that rather than getting too enamored by, you know, maybe the wrong things, you know, like whether it's cloud or reducing cost or creating a self-service model, that's all cool stuff, but does it align with what your customer expectations are is the, the bigger question that you should stay focused on. Yeah, absolutely. Back to that customer experience, what is your audience or your community really looking for from a value-driven perspective from your company? Um, and that brings me to switching gears to more of the middle market, that since we've covered kind of a, a global and obviously some industry titans, but what are our middle market businesses experiencing um, through this, this shifting? So here in the United States, we have the National Center of Middle Market. So basically, they support middle market businesses and, and help um, them through this transition when it comes to the shifting of the pandemic. So they created a new framework, basically, to help scale and take these businesses through their digital transformation. And I just wanted to share 
they ask five questions or five main pillars within this framework. And one is, what do we sell, right? What are our products and offering? How do we produce it? Supply chain, manufacturing, operations, business process management. How do we sell it? Again, customer experience, channels, branding, marketing. Um, what is our IT infrastructure when it comes to security systems? And then our workforce, what is our talent and our, our overall skill set? Um, so I, I wanted to kind of get your reaction to that, Eric, and see if you would kind of add anything, knowing that, again, a specialty of third stage is small to medium-sized businesses and supporting them through digital transformations as well. So any anything else you would add to that or elaborate on? No, I'd say two things that come to mind. One is that, you know, the priorities of those, was it five things you mentioned, five or six things that yes, um, five. are... Mm -hmm. So the, the priorities are going to be different for different industries and types of companies and individual organizations. So I think just understanding or having a clear vision of what your competitive differentiators are and what your priorities are as an organization is very important because, you know, you might have one or two of those five things that are really important and then another couple that aren't, they're important, but not as important. And then, you know, maybe something in between. So having that understanding is important. And then the other part of it too, is just making sure that all those things are aligned, everything you just described. Uh, it, it's easy to see one of those pieces get out of whack or to have a transformation strategy that doesn't address those things in a way that's aligned. So I think that, I don't know that I would add to that list necessarily. I would just augment it with more of a how you use that framework or how you think about those things uh, in the context of your business and your, your transformation. Yeah, absolutely. And they did prioritize two things that they were helping um, to make sure that they were keeping front of mind for the businesses they support. And it's customer engagement, that experience, lead generation, and marketing tools. Basically, how do you develop that? And then the second one was just overall employee engagement. So I wondered, in knowing that, you know, especially here in the United States, we've, we've experienced an extreme labor shortage, which we've talked about on this show as well. So that employee engagement can be really, really tough right now, attracting, retaining, looking for talent, sourcing talent. Um, do you have any advice for our listeners that might be in more of that small to medium-sized tier that are really looking to prioritize employee engagement but are, are, are having a hard time sourcing talent at this you know, current climate in the United States and, and globally as well? Yeah, at, at, the, at the base foundational level, there's some things that smaller businesses or any you know, organization of any size can do to, to increase that employee engagement. And you know, one is leveraging HCM or human capital and HR technologies that create a stickier environment through, um, you know, more deliberate HR processes that support the employee's journey throughout their career and within the organization. Things like performance management and uh, compensation management and just making sure that uh, employees are being mentored and groomed and, and trained and developed the way uh, and measured the way that is going to not only help the business, but but make them more likely to want to stay because it's a longer term development opportunity versus just I'm showing up today to do my job and then I'm going to go home. So, and that's you know that's easier said than done. I mean, for some industries, like in the hospitality industry, we were talking about that earlier. That's a harder industry to create that sort of stickiness or that sort of longer term view. But the more you can do that, and the more you treat employees as a replaceable commodity, 
the more you're going to see that stickiness. You're going to see that uh, higher level of engagement, people staying for the long haul. Right. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then, you know, the other thing is just, you know, more, maybe even more fundamental, fundamental, which is making sure that the organization itself is operating effectively and that you have a well-established uh, set of processes so people aren't trying to wing it or stressed out just trying to figure out how to do, do their jobs. And that gets back to, you know, clear business processes and clear systems or effective processes and systems that can help support uh, employees. So I think those are just a couple of things that come to mind for, for those types of organizations that are, that are more concerned about human capital management than, than others. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think it's almost empowering because a lot of the things that you just mentioned, you can do internally right now, right? You can make sure that the, the culture that you have is something that's being communicated throughout the entire um, organization. And then also you can make sure that your your employees that you have right now are really engaged, feeling satisfied in their jobs. And that will kind of radiate, it sounds like, based on what you said, to attracting more talent if you're able to kind of have those things really um, proficient within your organization today. So there is something you can do um, while facing the, those challenges that might not be in your controllables. Yeah, and it's that's a great point. And, and it's not it's not necessarily true that you need to wait until you go through a massive digital mm -hmm. transformation or business transformation before you can realize those benefits. I mean, there are things you can be doing that's more low hanging fruit, lower risk, higher value type stuff, process improvements, organizational improvements. Um, you, you even mentioned cultural changes. Mm -hmm. Those are all things that you can do without technology. You don't need new technology. It, it may exactly. help. I mean, technology typically will help you fuel that, maybe accelerate that process, but if you don't have the budget or the risk appetite or the time, or you know it's going to be years before you can actually get to the other side of a transformation, there's stuff you can do in the meantime that will actually not only give you immediate business value, but it actually gives you a stronger foundation to, to build on when it is time to put in new technology or to go through a digital transformation. So I, yeah. I feel like a lot of times companies think it's they're sort of paralyzed. They think, well, yeah. I, I can't afford a big, massive transformation, so I guess we're just stuck with who we are for now. But there's a lot of sort of a middle ground you can pursue that a lot of companies don't don't think enough about. Yeah, that's that's definitely great advice to be able to actually do something within your current climate and your current infrastructure um, as a business right now. While a lot of our small to mid-sized businesses are feeling kind of helpless with kind of outside considerations. Um, but that brings me to my last article I kind of wanted to touch on today, which was um, uh three priorities that CIOs should have when going through a digital transformation. Um, so I'm very excited to share this one because I now have a new buzzword that I plan on using at least daily in my work here at Third Stage. So the, well, the one of the first ones is to accept that the value of your transformation is worth more than your budget. So just understanding that there will be some values, as you kind of mentioned, there will be tiered um, ROI pieces to see and understanding that it's not just numbers on a budget, it's efficiencies and things like that. The second, which we talked about a lot today, was developing that customer-centric architecture versus just the platforms or systems you're utilizing yourself, understanding the customer experience and optimizing that as well. And without further ado, my favorite new buzzword is finding good connective tissue 
So making sure that you are connecting as an organization, aligning on priorities, building out that that infrastructure to um, a, a, a formulative communication plan and really connecting before you start a digital transformation um, that could be kind of disconnected and have more risks around it. So I know you love buzzwords, Eric. So I, I, I wondered he's, he's fan. <laughs> <laughs> if connective tissue could maybe land on your top 10 buzzwords in digital transformation list for 2022, maybe. Well, I actually, uh, I actually like that buzzword. I mean, most buzzwords I don't like. Um, in fact, you and I were talking right before this podcast about uh, a book that I'm working on and, and you guys, you and others are helping me write that book. But uh, one of the things we talked about, and I was only half kidding when I said it, is I should create a new buzzword that's sort of like mine or that's you know something we invented. And uh, I, I like that connective tissue one, though, because I actually just read a book called um, Scaling Up for Excellence, I think is what it's called. And I, I don't think I... Not that it matters, not that I need to show you the book if I have it on my bookshelf, but I actually read it on my iPad, I think. But um, it was the last book I read, and it was about how um, to create a truly high-performing organization and to grow that high performance, you have to have that. They didn't call it connective tissue, but they were basically saying that same thing. You need the connections and the you need to connect the dots between all the different competencies within your organization to kind of fuel the fire, to put it all together, to work together. And that's where a lot of organizations struggle. They have the pieces, but they're all siloed and they can't seem to put it together. So I, I do like that. I think that's very relevant and it's uh, top of mind for me because I, I just read about it recently. But I actually agree with two of those three. The first one I'm not totally sold on, but the, the second and the third uh, things that you mentioned are, are highly relevant. What's wrong with the first, just out of curiosity? Well, the you know I think it's sort of like, uh, it sounds like, I didn't read the article, so correct me if yeah. I'm wrong, but it sounds like they're saying it's sort of an absolute given that there is ROI in your transformation and you're going to realize it. But I think it's easier said than done. I think it's misleading to say that no matter what, no matter what, if you invest in a digital transformation or a new technology, you're going to get an ROI because that's not true. But I don't know if that's what the author was suggesting, but that's the way I interpret it. I think that, I think that, at least in my interpretation, it's just it kind of talks about how there is a huge kind of price um, sticker shock process within that. And it's important to understand that you might not see that exact number as a product of your digital transformation, say, maybe in the first year, maybe in the first month, whatever time frame you're looking at. Um, but it the properties of the technology itself will drive additional value for the organization. So I think that's- Well, I would actually tie it, I would wrap that comment into the connective tissue one and say it's actually a connective tissue thing because that point alone is not true because I can name, you probably can too, a lot of us on our our team at Third Stage could do this too, is name a bunch of companies that invested a lot of money in technology and they never saw, you know, or it took them, it was extremely painful to get the value out of that. So it's- Sort of like, you know, you can't just have this sort of build the technology or put the technology there and the value will come because that's not true. You have to connect it back to your people and your processes. And that's where that's a missing link to what the author is suggesting is that I would take his own advice on the third point and apply it to the first one to make it true. Absolutely. Well, I think moral of the story here is connective tissue is where it's at. It's on the map. And I plan to say it a lot in upcoming episodes. And if you can count the number of times I say it, audience members, throughout the next 
three episodes, I'll give you a free ticket to our digital stratosphere event. How about that? Nice. Ah, okay. <laughs> so you're going to keep track then is what you're saying. I you're am. I, no, I, I mean, the rest of our team, I'm just the talent over here, Eric. That's why I'm <laughs> Right. You're just the face <laughs> of the brand. I am. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I think that's a great transition to kind of talking through um, not only what our kind of connective tissue looks like, at third stage and moving on to Braden and talking through that. I, I think this is a great opportunity to kind of understand just our infrastructure and then kind of look at some really relevant case studies, which was awesome. I'm so glad that you're going through that with him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that is connective tissue is a great segue into the next segment of our, of our interview, which is uh, three different case studies we're going to talk about with Braden Gerbig from Third Stage Consulting. He's a director on our team and he works with a lot of different clients day to day and a lot of our project teams. So we thought it'd be good to have him on the show and talk through a few different case studies of clients he's working on right now. So we're going to take a quick break and we will have Braden on the show as soon as we return with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. This is episode number 40. And uh, we have an exciting guest for you. He's actually been on the show before, but it's been a long time. I think he was back on episode two or three, uh, back in the early days, or back in early 2021, which seems like forever ago. He was in one of our early episodes of this podcast when we first were starting out. So I thought it'd be good to have him back on the show. Uh, a lot has happened since he was on the show because he was uh, Braden Gerbig, who we're going to introduce here in a second, uh, is actually started with Third Stage last year. Uh, he was, I think, a senior manager, fairly senior person within the company uh, for his first few months here at the company, but then was promoted to director uh, a few months ago. I can't remember when. I think it was over the summer, perhaps. And anyway, he became a director, which means as a director, not that everything changes for him. He's still the same person, part of the same team. But now all of a sudden he's managing multiple projects, multiple project teams, engaging with all different kinds of clients day to day. So he's a director of strategy and transformation at the company. So what I thought it'd be interesting to do is have Braden on the show to just talk about some active case studies, not, 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 the, uh, not the type of case study where you finish a project after however many years and you look back on all the things you did right and wrong, but more, we're right in the thick of it. We're right in the heat of battle right now. And these are the things we're seeing. These are the challenges we're facing. Here's some of the lessons we're getting right now as we speak about these different situations. So also also thought it'd be good to draw on a global uh, client base too. You know, look at different parts of the world that we're that he and our teams are working with uh, different clients. So we have three case studies to unpack. But before we get to that, uh, Braden, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks, Eric. 
Yeah, I mean, you've been on the show before, but it's been it's been a few months since uh, the last time you were on. So I thought it'd be good to have you on and, and uh, cover some of the more recent uh, projects that you've you've been on. But before we dive into some of the the case studies and lessons learned of, of projects you're working on right now, uh, maybe just talk a little bit about your background. Uh, what maybe prior to third stage, what did you do, and what do you do now at third stage? Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. Uh, so Braden Gerbig, I'm a director with third stage. I've uh, I've uh, been in a number of uh, roles over the years, uh, both with large uh, uh, consultant consultancies, but also uh, smaller boutique firms, uh, mainly around technology, looking at uh, how technology furthers, uh, you know, the business challenges in terms of not only digital transformation, but large system implementations, also some custom software development. Uh, and implementations. Uh, and so over the years, I've worked with uh, not only uh, uh, smaller uh, uh, local companies, but large uh, global uh, integrated companies. And uh, the challenges uh, are, are not only, um, uh, you know, pretty standard across implementations, but um, uh, also uh, depending on industry and uh, uh, location, et cetera. There's a number of uh, considerations that, that come into play when we talk about technology. Right. Right. Good. And in, in your, so your role here at third stage as director, you're, you're overseeing at any given time, sort of multiple clients and, and you see them, you know, from start to finish all the way through their transformation journeys. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that sort of what is your role and, and, you know, your role is a little bit unique in that you're, at a senior level so you're kind of touching multiple projects along the way rather than being just on one project at any given time so maybe just talk about you know what your involvement is on some of these projects yeah sure that, that that's correct so uh you know we start by uh you know some conversations around uh the challenges uh, that the client is facing uh it's really a kind of a discovery effort at first uh and so because i am over uh, multiple clients uh and overseeing a number of projects in flight, um, you know, a lot of the challenges that we're seeing on, on projects uh, that are already uh, up and running uh, or just getting started, uh, those challenges uh, translate to a lot of the conversations we have initially in terms of uh, what, what the client is trying to achieve. Uh, so we start there, uh, understand the, the goals and objectives, and really dive into uh, some of the challenges they're facing currently, get an understanding of uh, the current state, uh, talk about uh, uh, legacy systems, uh, you know, not only uh, systems, but also the, you know, the company and the organization and where the, where the organization is trying to go. Uh, so uh, getting that starting point uh, well-defined, uh, we'll go through a number of conversations to uh, flush out their, their team, uh, you know, the company size, uh, you know, revenues, things of that nature, and understand, uh, you know, whether or not they're coming into another growth cycle, uh, whether that's through an acquisition or organically, uh, and start to understand how the systems will fit that landscape uh, and, and really start that exploration uh, in terms of uh, defining the team and, and duration of a project and really getting more folks engaged in the conversation to start scheduling our our kickoffs and, and uh, alignment sessions and things of that nature. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, interesting for sure hearing, hearing you talk about some of the clients you're working with just because you do get such a broad exposure of some of these different uh, companies. 
and there were there are three in particular that we wanted to talk about here today and, and sort of dive into you know what is it we're doing with each of these clients um what are some of the challenges we're facing what why are they trying to go through their transformations and i thought it'd be a just a good way to learn about um from other organizations you know some of their lessons and uh, without giving away uh the, the names of the companies obviously we can't give away uh confidential information or, or the company names themselves but we can talk about a little bit about what the organizations do what we're doing for them what some of the challenges are and what some of the lessons are um, and the three that we are going to cover today uh, one is a uh, chemical manufacturer based in Latin America. Um, so we have the, I guess, the fortune or the, the, the good fortune of being able to work with a global client base, um, clients and teams throughout the world. And this particular one is in Latin America, and they're, they're a, a larger chemical manufacturer in Latin America. We're going to cover that. We'll cover a financial services organization, a large financial services organization based in the U.S. And then we'll also talk about an industrial component infrastructure uh, manufacturer uh, based in the U.S. as well. So those are the three organizations we're going to dive into a little bit and, and get some lessons from. Um, but before we we do that, um, just a real quick uh, update on where people are joining from today, uh, particularly over on LinkedIn. Just looking at the stream here, we have a, a good turnout there on LinkedIn, and we've got people, a couple people from London, San Diego, Toronto, uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Yorkshire, England, um, India. Uh, we have someone from Spain here on Crowdcast, among others. So total global audience here today. So this is a very fitting topic, I think, for, for a global audience, given that we're going to cover some global uh, organizations here today. Um, but let's start off with, um, you know, of these three case studies, let's start off with the, um, um, why don't we start with the, the, uh, the in, uh, not the industrial component one, the uh, chemical manufacturer in Latin America. Let's start there. And, um, Maybe just tell us a little bit about the company without mentioning it by name, obviously, or revealing confidential info. Just tell us a little bit about the size, scope, complexity of that organization, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. Without uh, uh, giving away too much, it's a, a large uh, chemical manufacturer, and um, uh, they deal with um, you know a lot of uh, distribution challenges uh, in a number of different uh, Latin American uh, countries. Um, so, you know, you're talking more than a handful of uh, different countries. So localization is a big concern. Um, and when you take a, a large uh, ERP uh, spread across um, in, you know, numerous uh, uh, countries and, and locations, um, you know, the challenges become several in terms of not only the, the usage at the, the user level, uh, but then also uh, standardization at the, the corporate and, and leadership levels. So uh, trying to um, establish the leadership uh, as that across a number of different co countries, I keep wanting to say companies, but countries, right. um, it's really the challenge. So going to each of the, each of those locations and, and uh, identifying the challenges uh, bringing that back and uh, standardizing uh, how we'll approach that from a systems perspective is extremely important. Uh, so you mentioned that they're uh, Latin American uh, uh, companies. So, uh, you know, we also have uh, language uh, and cultural uh, differences that uh, we navigate through uh, during during the uh, course of the system concerns. Um, and so with that, we have uh, translation during sessions and and it's, it's a bit of a um, uh, unique challenge when you're working, especially uh, remote uh, over, over a laptop or over a computer, 
conducting sessions uh, with translation. Um, you have a lot of real-time chats that are uh, going from uh, Spanish to English or English to Spanish, uh, and then also discussion and uh, decisions being made in those meetings. Uh, so it's a lot to keep track uh, of. Excited to, to take on challenges, and uh, it's really you know, it's quite an experience from a learning perspective, um, just in terms of how we how we manage across uh, language and culture uh, remotely. Um, so we're applying those those lessons learned to uh, to our exploration process, and it's 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 going well so far. Good, good. So what what is it that maybe just to look at the the big picture of of what led this company to? Um, to their digital transformation. Why are they going through this? Why did they hire us? And maybe what, what was the problem statement they were trying to solve? Sure. So, you know, they're, they're a legacy user of, uh, uh, well, I, I should say a legacy user of SAP. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, this, this is not unique to SAP. It's, it's a challenge that we have with a, a number of uh, companies that have uh, legacy ERP that are uh, not only uh, in place for a number of years, but um, uh, various modules, various customizations, um, taking that legacy ERP to uh, current current uh, uh, abilities and inversion, uh, uh, looking at uh, is, is that ERP still the best fit? Uh, do we want to consider other uh, elements or continue with uh, that ERP or another vendor? Uh, and start uh, assessing uh, the needs really at the at the user level uh, to understand if we want to go through a full selection or or uh, just an upgrade. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're we're approaching. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, with with the number of countries involved, uh, you know we have SI considerations as well. Um, you know, the localization is, is really a big concern when we, when it comes down to the SI. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that, you know, the cultural and language aspects that you were talking about a moment ago, and then not obviously the, you know, the complexity of the organization in general is obviously a, a big consideration uh, as, as we're thinking through this. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Braden. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to continue the conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 40. You can find us every week, every Wednesday on YouTube and all the 
usual audio podcast platforms. And we're here chatting with Braden Gerbig from Third Stage Consulting about some case studies of current client engagements that our teams are working on and some of the lessons that go along with that. So let's cut back to the conversation. So they're, they're, they're on a legacy SAP system. They're trying to figure out, do they, do we upgrade? Do we just upgrade to the S4 HANA within SAP or do we look at something uh, totally different? Um, what, how, how are we helping them? I mean, what is, what is the process we've gone through so far uh, in the journey? It's sort of midstream right now. Yeah, we, we go through selling documentation, but uh, conducting a number of interviews, both at the leadership level and then also uh, what I call the uh, the frontline managers of those processes, uh, really getting some in-depth detail around uh, how the organization works uh, and then applying that to the system landscape, whether that's uh, tier one vendors or tier two vendors. Um, we cast a pretty broad net at first uh, and then narrow that down to a short list uh, pretty quickly uh, to understand uh, who will be involved in the RFP process. Uh, and then we reach out to those vendors to conduct uh, the RFP process. And from there, it really comes down to uh, uh, demonstrations following RFPs. Uh, we're not quite there yet, um, but the demonstrations really help us understand not only how, how the system uh, accomplishes the requirements, as we understand them in the current state, uh, but we also want to uh, observe that uh, and really understand um, how it works in their system. And that's a very scripted uh, process and that's uh, designed to uh, standardize the response so that we can uh, compare uh, standard across uh, uh, vendors because the systems are not all going to look and feel the same and we want to we want to really drive out the the functionality and understand how the system will work in, the, in their environment right right so what um what are some of the the lessons you've seen so far on this evaluation i know it's early you know we're still working towards that decision and path forward but what, what are some of the lessons you're finding or some of the takeaways or aha moments that we've had so far on this project yeah, I'd say for for this um, this client in particular, the challenge is not so much will the system work uh, for us. It's it, the challenge is really more around, uh, uh, I guess, disqualifying a vendor than it is um, uh, identifying uh, the, the most appropriate. So, by that I mean, uh, you know, all all systems will all the systems we're evaluating. Uh, will work for the challenges we're, we're um, exploring at the moment. Um, so it really comes down to um, really getting into the, the lower level detail to identify the correct vendor. Um, uh, so by that, I mean, if, if, if all vendors um, that we're assessing at the moment uh, have the functionality or the capability to work with uh, the client in terms of their needs, uh, it really comes down to uh, how they partner with the client, uh, the total cost of ownership, uh, long-term concerns, uh, really uh, digging into the detail of the business case. So uh, that's that's the probably the first lesson. The second lesson is when you look at tier one um, uh, vendors, uh, whether it's uh, you know the the usual names that come to mind, SAP, Oracle, or other. Um, you know, you're really assessing uh, uh, not only the, the partnership levels, but also the peer group in the industry and do they work well in that industry? Um, you know, there are some cases where uh, 
uh, certain industries are a challenge for some vendors. Right, right. So I know it's early to ask this, and uh, it's always risky as a consultant to jump to conclusions. But uh, given given what you know so far and what we know so far about this client, what do you, what do you think they'll do? I mean, if you had to bet money, on, are they going to stay on SAP or are they going to go with something different? What do you where where where'd you bet your money? I hate betting, by the way, but so I like yeah. to ask where they bet their money. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a pretty dangerous question to ask in the middle of a selection, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll go ahead and answer it anyways. Um, you know, there, there's there's some things that um, are, are beneficial to understanding the legacy environment. Uh, you know the vendor, you know the challenges associated with the vendor, um, you understand where you need some additional support in terms of other applications, bolt-ons or integrations, things of that nature. Um, you also understand uh, the industry challenges with the vendors. So uh, I, I guess to, to quit dodging the question, my, my gut feeling my gut feeling is, is that they'll uh, continue um, with SAP. Now, whether or not that's um, how that continuation occurs, that still remains. Yeah. Yeah, and I know I know that's an unfair question to put you on the spot like that, but it, it is an interesting <laughs> dynamic though because we see that a lot, right? Where, where clients, I mean, some clients we work with on their evaluations, they have old legacy, you know, homegrown systems that clearly need to go, and they're clearly going to rip it out and do something different. But then you get clients like this where they're using a semi-modern ERP system. They've invested a lot of time and money in it. They've built competencies around it. And so the threshold, it seems like the threshold that you, you have to meet to be able to justify ripping that out and going a totally different direction, mm -hmm. it's a much higher threshold, even if the system's imperfect, you know, even if there's theoretically a system out there that might be slightly better than what they have, it's, it's, it's got to be a lot more than that to be able to justify the risk and the cost of just kind of throwing that all out and starting over with a new, new system or landscape. Yeah, that's that, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, a lot of times uh, our clients, and this is of, I think most of our clients are going through some kind of life cycle event and, th and that triggers the, the need for um, adjustment, you know, whether that's uh, throwing out a perfectly good system. And I don't want to say throwing out because we do carry forward a lot of the process, a lot of the understanding that the system provides. Uh, but if, if we're replacing that with a new system, uh, the business case has to be pretty sound. And then I think that's what I mean by um, when I say disqualifying other vendors, you know, you have to have a really good reason uh, for why one vendor works and why, why another vendor doesn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, well, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, and before I do that though, um, just a reminder to the audience that's watching this live um, over on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Facebook. Um, <laughs> Feel free to chime in with any questions on any of these case studies or just general questions you might have for, for Braden and I. Um, love to hear, get your input. I've got a series of questions I'll keep rolling with, but if you guys have questions at any point, feel free to jump in and I'll keep an eye on the streams here as, as we're talking. Um, so let's shift gears and talk about the, um, let's go with the financial services company in the US, the larger financial services company. Tell us a little bit about that company, what they do, and sort of what what's the situation? Why why did they hire us? Yeah, uh, again, similar challenges. Uh, only uh, in this case, uh, less of a uh, um, uh, uh, remote concern. Uh, we're we're looking now more at um, uh, just more of an upgrade to the latest and greatest. 
but there are a number of considerations that go into this. Um, uh, it's really not only bringing the technology forward, but some of the, the overall uh, business strategies. Um, you know, you talk about things like uh, reporting strategies and start getting into the complexities of reporting on, on large U.S. concerns. Um, you know, that, that, that's a difficult and unique challenge uh, when you're talking again about uh, tier one players uh, because you need to understand the underlying data structures. Uh, really how uh, uh, the data structures play into uh, the long-term goals of the organization and, and getting those uh, established in the process as you're getting uh, prepared to stand up um, an ERP implementation. Um, so it's really our, our role in this is, is different in the sense that uh, we're not going through a selection per se on this uh, effort. We're here, we're more uh, providing some guidance around uh, large implementation uh, and really using our um, quality assurance framework to to assess the project as it uh, moves into implementation. We're still very much in the planning stages. Um, so we're, we're looking at uh, the underlying planning, uh, how the SI is partnering with the client and, and really how, uh, you know, long term, uh, not only industry expertise plays plays into the strategy, but also uh, how the the teams are structured, uh, uh, making sure that uh, we have alignment from the leadership level down uh, and, and really helping to uh, make sure that uh, the system uh, plans and designs are in place uh, appropriately before implementation. Yeah. Yeah. So look quite a bit different than the last case study we just talked about in that the path has already been defined. The technology has been selected. There's sort of a, a general strategy that they're they're marching towards, but they hired us to help make sure that the implementation goes well and that they you know kind of fill in some of their some of their blind spots uh, on their team. Um, what are and this is another one. And, and you know, I intentionally picked these three case studies because they are fairly early, and you know, you get some of those initial first impressions from the projects, and you're you sort of you and the teams that are working with you are, are getting a lay of the land in many cases on these projects, including this one. Well, what are some of the initial, uh, just at a high level, some of the initial buckets of uh, risk or challenges that this client are, are facing or that you see on the horizon for this particular implementation so far? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, not to get into too much detail around the risk, but I think it's a common risk that we find um, in large implementations. And that's really uh, identifying the appropriate expertise. Um, uh, it's really a challenge even uh, at the global level uh, to, to identify uh, uh, people that have the, the depth of experience that you need uh, going to a newer technology. You know, you mentioned HANA before um, and, and that, that there's the, the, the talent pool for uh, uh, experience in those implementations is limited, right? So uh, identifying uh, people that have been through these uh, challenges, whether they be uh, reporting challenges, data strategies, um, uh, you know, logistics, warehouse challenges, uh, uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of challenges that are associated with a new system and, and, and you know, not having the maturity of that system in the marketplace uh, to be able to point to other case studies you're kind of leading from the front and, and that's a difficult challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I would think, especially for a, uh, a, a relatively conservative industry like financial services, and I don't mean conservative politically, obviously I mean more, um, 
risk adverse and more you know, focused on controls and that sort of thing. It seems like the risk is a bit higher uh, in, in that regard. Absolutely. And that's where you want some extra eyes and ears, uh, folks. Other projects that you can point to that are a case study uh, uh, of going through these challenges and, and been there, done that kind of look. Um, and that's where we rely on our, our team and, and uh, uh, our other offices. Uh, you know, we have seen these large uh, implementations globally. Um, you know, the number of implementations here in the U.S. is probably uh, uh, limited. So, uh, you know, finding finding those case studies in the U.S. is not always easy. Uh, so that's where we lean on our, our global offices to uh, identify uh, where, you know, these these implementations have occurred previously. Yeah. Yeah. And I know on, on this project and in other projects that, that you're involved with and we're involved with, we have uh, a lot of cross-pollination between uh, offices and team members. We have, we have an office in London and then an office in Brisbane, Australia with, with teams based there. So it's kind of nice to be able to draw from the, the global um, skill set there um, to support that. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Braden. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to continue the conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 40. You can find us every week, every Wednesday on YouTube and all the usual audio podcast platforms. And we're here chatting with Braden Gerbig from Third Stage Consulting about some case studies of current client engagements that our teams are working on and some of the lessons that go along with that. So let's cut back to the conversation. What are, uh, you know, based on where we are in this project right now, what are what are some of the next steps or what are some of the things that are on the short-term horizon as far as helping them get ready for this this journey they're about to go on? Yeah, it's re it's really coming back with some, some pointed... Um, uh, looks at, uh, you know, where, where we go next in terms of architecture concerns. Um, and, and as I mentioned, you know, that's both at the data level, but also uh, at the reporting uh, level. So do we partner with other uh, vendors in, in, in the mix in terms of SAP and other, or do we go more with a, a pure strategy and, and lean heavily on SAP as the vendor and bring them in? Uh, to, to leverage their expertise uh, in these areas of challenge. And I think, uh, you know, when you're when you're talking about a large uh, uh, SAP implementation, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to uh, uh, leverage their expertise in, in the areas that we need. Um, and, and getting other vendors at the table can sometimes uh, overcomplicate things. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a delicate balance. Uh, so, you know, we want to meet the need. We want to identify uh, the best approach, uh, but we also don't want to overcomplicate things. Uh, you know, the 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 old uh, 
adage of uh, keeping it simple definitely applies here. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you've got a complex transformation like that, a complex organization, a very large organization, it can be, um, it can be easy to get lost in the details and over, overcomplicate things. So I think that's a, that's a good, good sound advice. Um, it's interesting, just as a side note, it's interesting that, um, and I didn't realize this until we actually got into this discussion here today, but as we were planning for this, I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that we have two of the three uh, examples here are somehow SAP related. One's an existing mm -hmm. SAP customer that's trying to figure out, do we stay on SAP or, or do we upgrade S4 HANA? And then, you know, in this case, it's one that's already decided they're going to implement S4 HANA and they're heading down that path. Um, do you think in general, you know, we as a company are starting to see, um, even though we're independent, we're technology agnostic, we're not aligned with any software vendor, we're not affiliated with SAP, we do a lot more than just SAP implementations. We do, you know, Oracle, NetSuite, um, Microsoft Dynamics, etc. But it seems like we're seeing more SAP projects recently, or either troubled projects or ones that are underway. Do you think that's a, do you think that's a bigger trend in the industry? Or is that just a coincidence that we're talking about a couple of, you know, two, two SAP projects in particular here today? Yeah, I think it's both. You know, we're, we're talking uh, about SAP a lot uh, right now, I think, because uh, there are a number of companies that um, are looking at S4 HANA, um, you know, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, newer product, newer challenges. Um, it's not only, um, you know, SAP specific, but we're also talking about uh, cloud versus on-prem right now. Uh, so that's a big part of the, the conversation. Um, you know, a lot of the, the newer versions um, bring in cloud concerns. And you're talking about uh, not just a shift in strategy, but also uh, a shift in uh, the personnel that the, the client needs to consider in terms of uh, things like data strategies, integration, um, you know, support, uh, training, education. These are all things that uh, with newer technologies become difficult, as I mentioned, because uh, the, the number of resources available uh, uh, to handle those challenges, again, are limited. So there are, uh, you know, ways to uh, bring in that expertise uh, over time, uh, but trying to uh, hit it in a large implementation where, you know, you're bringing in uh, significant uh, resources to, to address uh, concerns early in the project. Um, you know, that, that's a, a considerable challenge. You know, you've got to uh, reach out to more uh, partners, more vendors, more consultancies to understand uh, uh, if they have the resources available to, to handle, uh, you know, the implementation. So I, I think SAP's, uh, you know, it, we're probably hearing about it more because we're doing it more. So, um, you know, we find that uh, people are, are uh, interested in our experience because uh, we're addressing these challenges uh, frequently right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like our, as we, as a company have grown, our, our client base has gotten larger, you know, in terms of their, their size. And so that leads you towards more, uh, SAP implementations as well. So it seems like there's a, a number of, of factors at, at play there. Um, one that is less likely, I, although we, you know, we don't want to jump to conclusions here either, but the third case study we have today is probably a lot less likely to be heading down the SAP path um, as part of their journey. But um, before we jump to that conclusion, before I jump to that conclusion, maybe we could talk about the, uh, the industrial components and infrastructure product company that's based here in the United States. What uh, Tell us a little bit about them. 
Yeah, sure. you know, time we, we work with large uh, industrial uh, manufacturers, we, we um, start working with uh, things like regulatory agencies or, uh, you know, larger uh, bodies that govern uh, these, these types of manufacturing. Um, so uh, the challenges become more on the supply chain side. Uh, we start talking about more logistical challenges. Um, we start talking about uh, location challenges. A lot of these manufacturers are in, uh, you know, rural locations or, or uh, sometimes uh, remote location. And, and so uh, you start looking at uh, infrastructure challenges, uh, all kinds of things that uh, may not apply, especially when you're, you know, if you compare it to uh, like a financial services company, for example, you know, there, we're not uh, uh, talking about a, a more of a, I guess, a corporate implementation. We're talking more of a frontline operational implementation that really becomes the concern. And so, uh, you, you know, we spend a lot of time in the, in the actual manufacturing process, understanding uh, uh, the challenges associated with uh, a manufacturing line, uh, whether they be, uh, you know, planning MRP, or if it's more of a, a shipping and logistics concern. Um, these are all things that are much more detailed at the process level. Uh, so the interview process becomes more um, detailed, uh, you know, understanding the requirements becomes much more detailed. But in a lot of cases, especially when you talk about manufacturing, you're taking a client from uh, a green screen, uh, you know, a system that's been in place for 30 or 40 years uh, and bringing that into today's technology, and that's a quantum leap. Uh, so with that comes a lot of training, a lot of education, uh, just in terms of today's capabilities. Um, and, and really, it's, it's the, uh, the thing you find yourself um, uh, educating people on is, is, you know, they don't know what they don't know in terms of uh, if you've used the same process and system for 30 to 40 years, uh, you're not going to uh, under quickly understand what's available to you uh, in today's technology at, at, a, at an ERP level. Um, it's a massively different process. We're not talking about printing out uh, reports and reading printouts and, and marking up printouts anymore. Uh, we're doing that in workflows within the system, uh, and a lot of that is automated. So the process changes uh, significantly. Uh, and so, you know, designing that that uh, process and change, change management, all the training that goes along with that is, is really more of the challenge in this case. Yeah, that's an interesting point and an interesting contrast to the, especially the first case study where, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, that potential incremental upgrade from an old legacy vendor to the, the newer vendor product. Um, here, we're talking about less likely to be a incremental upgrade more of a, a big shift and i think that's a that seems to be a an area or a a um magnitude a measurement of magnitude that a lot of times companies don't understand or, or think about is you know how big of a change is this really going to be for us you know is it is it more incremental is it a massive use the word quantum leap and those are two different paths with two different strategies and different types of pressures and risks and that sort of thing so that's really interesting contrast when especially compared to that first case study we talked about yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I think it comes down to uh, spending more time 
uh, in that that collaborative uh, uh, environment to to really get the client involved in understanding what's what it's going to take to to go through that transformation, right? So uh, it's it's kind of going along for the journey. Uh, you know, the the journey really becomes more of the the process than the actual uh, technology because you're 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 getting a new understanding of uh, how you're you're going about your your daily work, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, the change strategy is going to be totally different. Uh, there's more risk. There's usually more cost associated with that. There's more time. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you compare that implementation roadmap compared to one that is less of a change. You're probably going to end up with two different two different paths and two different answers, which is why, you know, that cookie cutter one size fits all approach is so risky with with organizations that are going through projects like these. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's it's really exciting, uh, too, when you when you start looking at companies that have been uh, uh, doing the same, you know, the same uh, daily process uh, for 30 years, uh, when you start talking about, uh, you know, making these massive adjustments, um, you know, it's it's exciting to see uh, how that transformation takes place. Um, you're talking not only about efficiencies, but uh, just a new way of doing things. And it uh, it uh, makes things in, in a lot of cases uh, uh, simpler at the user level uh, once new systems are adopted in, in cases like this. Uh, but it also uh, uh, starts to shed light on, uh, you know, uh, a better way of doing business um, just in terms of uh, understanding things at, at a detailed level that uh, maybe weren't available before. Right, right. All right, good stuff. Thanks, Braden. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to continue the conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 40. You can find us every week, every Wednesday on YouTube and all the usual audio podcast platforms. And we're here chatting with Braden Gerbig from Third Stage Consulting about some case studies of current client engagements that our teams are working on and some of the lessons that go along with that. So let's cut back to the conversation. You, you sort of touched on this already, but um, you know when you talk about the the magnitude of change and how big of a change this is going to be, in addition to that magnitude of change in this particular case, what are some of the biggest challenges that this client is facing, or that we you know we're facing as a team in helping this particular client from what you've seen so far? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, we're hearing a lot about the supply chain crunch right now, right? Um, and I think that's, um, you know, part of the challenge, because when you look at uh, uh, things like the MRP process, uh, for example, 
um, you know, there, there's only so much you can do um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, efficiencies and in, in making the the, the um, supply chain challenges. Uh, uh, you know, uh, finding solution to the supply chain challenges. Uh, it, it, there's there's I think um, uh, just a, a, an understanding now that. Uh, you know, we need these systems more than, than ever because, uh, you know, we need better information to handle uh, the challenges. We need to go further than just our, our tier one suppliers. we got to look at tier two, tier three. Uh, we need that information to be able to adjust um, ordering, uh, uh, you know, products, goods, uh, things of that nature is not, uh, we, we can't just uh, do business as usual. Uh, so we're, we're, having to, to have further looks into uh, our value chain and, and really uh, uh, get better detailed understanding of uh, lead times and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, it's really kind of uh, designing that uh, uh, system at a more uh, detailed level uh, in terms of you're trying to solve for a, a, a real world challenge now uh, in addition to solving for your business. Um, and so taking those into consideration uh, really kind of augments the discussion uh, to say, okay, we, you know, we're in a, a real world challenge right now. Uh, how can the systems help for, for that challenge as we continue to not only uh, uh, serve our current client or customer base, uh, but as we grow and expand uh, in this environment, um, you know, th this client in particular is, is opening uh, new locations. Um, and so standing up new locations uh, in this challenge uh, is something that we need to consider. And again, the, the same uh, uh, challenges that I mentioned in the first study apply. Uh, you know, new locations bring, uh, 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 you know, new cultures and, and new uh, environments into play that uh, we need to standardize and align. and and get the messaging out there that, uh, you know, the system will help drive uh, not only the, the, uh, the workflows, but also the communications and, and how we work across locations and cross-functionally and get out of silos and, and integrate our business uh, more tightly. Yeah, you, you hit on a couple really interesting points there. They're, they're big, massive uh, issues, you know, that obviously <laughs> in one and that's top of mind for a lot of organizations. And then you talk about the cultural um, shifts that, that this all entails, um, you know, on the, on the supply chain side, I, I guess, you know, this is more of a general question, maybe not so much just for this particular client, but you can answer it just for this client if you'd like, but I, I guess I'm curious, are you seeing, um, that organizations in general, including this one, do, do they have a good handle on what it is they need to do to fix their supply chain issues? You know, whether it's technology improvements or process or people issues or all the above, or what's your read on that? Just from what you're seeing right now with clients. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that uh, I'm hearing consistently is just, um, uh, you know, when when uh, clients go to address this challenge, um, finding people is probably the biggest uh, component uh, of the of the equation. Um, you know, it's, it's a really difficult environment right now in terms of uh, being able to keep, uh, you know, staff uh, in place to to handle uh, the workload as, uh, you know, one piece of the supply chain slows down, another uh, piece of the supply chain will speed up. Uh, and so uh, identifying the, the people element and understanding uh, 
how we can maybe offload some of the processes into a systematic environment, I think could, could uh, help address some of these concerns. Uh, but, you know, really you're talking about frontline people uh, within those processes uh, where, where we have the, the biggest challenge. Um, and then uh, the other piece of that equation is the uh, suppliers. Uh, and so it's really looking beyond, as I said, uh, looking beyond tier one suppliers and getting into tier two and tier three. Uh, and so it's establishing ways of doing that, whether whether you're used to uh, ordering by phone and now uh, you have a more automated way of doing that or a better supplier portal, uh, things of that nature, uh, those all help with uh, managing some of these challenges that we're seeing now. Yeah, yeah. And it seems pretty widespread. I mean, I, I don't talk to all of our clients every day, but the ones I do talk to, when I do talk to them, it seems like supply chain or something related to supply chain, whether it's getting raw materials they need or whether it's labor issues, whether it's shipping and trucking issues, there's there's so many breakdowns happening in the uh, supply chain right now. So it, it really is becoming a pretty urgent sort of thing. Um, do you find that, you know, in the case of this case study or, or other clients you're working with, are, are there any interim fixes that these companies are going through? I know I'm going down a rabbit hole, by the way, of supply chain management, but, but this is very interesting and top of mind for a lot of people right now. But are, are they doing anything in the interim to fix their supply chains while they're waiting to select new software, implement new technologies and things of that nature? Or do you see a lot of companies that are sort of paralyzed until they can get to that point of getting through their transformation or at least the first phases of their transformation? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're seeing both. Um, you know, I think some of the things are, are logical, uh, quick fix solutions, you know, things like having uh, more inventory on hand, uh, but obviously you can only do that so much. Um, and, and when you're talking about uh, everyone facing it in, in those locations, right? So, um, and then you, the other thing is uh, better visibility into uh, the logistics. Uh, so once uh, product leaves the door, uh, where is it? Uh, when's it going to be there? Uh, you know, these are very basic challenges that uh, really come down to communication and, and availability of information, right? Um, if we know where something is, we can push on it to, to get there faster. Uh, if we don't know where it is, then it's, it's going to get there when it gets there. And uh, these are the, the kinds of things that uh, they sound simple, but when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, everyone facing the same challenge, uh, even at uh, down to the consumer level, uh, you know, it's it's really uh, we've got to get better systems in place to handle the communications and and move product faster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and at least anticipate where the problems might be and give you give you some time to react to it or adjust to to pivot from that. Sure. Yeah. So I guess to 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 close the loop on these three case, case studies, then, um, you know, they all happen to be, although they're all very different industries, different geographies, different issues and technologies they're dealing with. Um, what are some of the common themes, you know, in these three case studies, as far as, you know, lessons or takeaways for organizations that are about to start their transformation? Cause all three of these case studies are pretty early in the, in the journey. Um, are there sort of themes or a couple different themes that you're picking up on in these these case studies and others where we're in early in the cycle like this? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you mentioned it because they are early in the in the stages of uh, development. 
you know, I think um, uh, alignment is is key, right? So, uh, getting getting alignment at the leadership level, uh, and then really getting it uh, at the at the teaming level uh, to make sure that uh, we're, you know we're all marching towards the same goals and objectives uh, as it relates to the implementation. Uh, adopting some of those uh, newer ways of doing things uh, leads to training. Uh, so, getting getting the right uh, uh, teaming in place for training and, and understanding of the system, uh, establishing, uh, you know, those kinds of uh, communications to really head off the, the change challenges that we face. Um, you know, these are, these are uh, pretty common themes uh, with all our clients. Um, I think uh, going through any kind of transformation uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the system, whether it be tier one or, or you know, a tier two, tier three, uh, system, uh, you know, where we really want to get that, that uh, adoption uh, at all levels. And, and that takes time. It takes effort. Uh, it takes meetings. And, you know, everyone has a day job. And so trying to uh, take away time uh, to, to uh, participate in these meetings, uh, to talk about the system, to talk about uh, some of the cross-functional issues, getting out of silos um, and really looking at how data flows throughout the organization. Um, these are all common themes. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good stuff. It's a good, good place to, to wrap it up and a good summary for, for anyone about to start a, a transformation. And uh, that's exactly why we wanted to have you on here was to kind of learn as in real time, as these lessons are popping up in these, these case studies, you know, what are some of the things we can take away and apply to other uh, situations. So really appreciate, uh, appreciate you having you on the, on the show here today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Braden. That was great stuff. Good lessons learned and some really interesting clients that you and the teams are working with here within Third Stage. And uh, we've got some additional things to talk about, some lessons learned and some uh, follow-on thoughts that Kyler and I have. And we'll talk about those when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 40. Be sure to follow us on social media. Uh, you can follow Third Stage. You can also follow myself on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you're on social media. Chances are we're probably there in some fashion. So be sure to subscribe, follow, subscribe to or follow us on whatever platform you're on. We put out daily stuff on social media as far as content, videos, blogs, all that good stuff. So Kyler, we just had a uh, discussion with Braden. What were some of your thoughts after hearing some of those uh, case studies that we discussed? 
Yeah, great conversation. Um, I think it, it might be helpful for our audience for you to just kind of briefly explain the director tier here at Third Stage. You know, what, what are they do, how many of them are, and, and when um, a project is kicking off, what can our community or our audience or our future clients expect from kind of the directors here at Third Stage? Yeah, that's a good question. I probably should have prefaced the, uh, the whole conversation by explaining that a bit more. But in general, the way we're organized is we have our, our executive team at Third Stage is based in Denver in the United States, which is where you and I are and where uh, some of us are. Um, in addition, we also have uh, leaders or office leads or vice presidents for different regions. So we have a vice president of Europe who's based in London. And we have a vice president of Asia Pacific who's based in Australia. And underneath either the corporate team in the U.S. or the VPs uh, in the regions, we have director level, which is sort of the next layer right below, you know, sort of the C-level uh, suite, if you will. And those directors are really the, the most senior people within the organization that help talk to new potential clients. They end up scoping out potential projects with new clients, and then they end up uh, managing the delivery of those clients. So they sort of take it through the entire cycle of business development or new potential client all the way through delivery and, you know, positioning follow on work and making sure we're continuing to add value to our clients longer term in their transformation journeys. So the director role is sort of a hybrid between business development, I'd call it, even though I, I hesitate to use that word because really they're just consulting from the time they first reach out to us and then overseeing the, the project teams that actually deliver the work and making sure the clients are happy and having that executive interface with our client teams as well. So that's it in a nutshell, what, what a director does. And we have directors in the US, we have directors in um, Europe as well as in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting, so it sounds, it sounds like they're kind of the lifeblood of the overall project um, when it comes to working with clients and um, producing deliverables. Yeah, they, they sort of set the strategic vision and direction of the project and work with the clients to make sure that we're adding the most value and that we're, you know, providing the best outside competencies that we can and making sure that we're in sync with what the clients expect all, all along the way. Yeah, definitely. And I love how Brayden um, kind of brought up the cultural piece of that in this the first case study talking about our um, Latin American community that we work with. So I wonder, when, can you kind of help us understand how you staff projects like that, bilingual projects? Because I assume for third stage, that's kind of a normal um, resourcing exercise. Yeah, it, it, it depends on the language and the part of the world. In the case of Latin America, that's an area where we don't yet have an office, although that's in the works. Um, so in the meantime, until we have an office in Latin America and a, and a you know physical footprint in Latin America, we're delivering that from North America. And, but having said that, it's not enough just to say, okay, a bunch of North Americans are going to come consult for this Latin American client right. uh, because they operate, I think he said in six or seven different countries. So they're, yeah. they're all over Latin America, pretty big organization. So what we, the way we've staffed that project is we have a bilingual senior, senior manager level consultant, who's sort of the, the just below Braden, you know, managing the overall project, working with our other team members, which includes a translator. So even though she speaks Spanish and English, we also have a translator who's there to help document and make sure our deliverables are bilingual as well. Um, and then we have uh, other team members that um, maybe uh, are not bilingual, but they're they're supporting the project as well. 
Absolutely. That's so cool, you know, that you can continue to provide that expertise and kind of cross those cultural boundaries. Um, you know, just a little plug for our Digital Stratosphere Sister podcast. This week, we do have Michelle um, Wise, who supports most of our Latin American business as well. And she actually gives um, some Spanish translations in our podcast. So if you are part of that community, go over and, and check that out too, as, as she um, gives her contact information and all that that type of, of good stuff. But I was really interested in kind of the transition or the evaluation, I should say, of considering switching from that legacy system to an additional system and kind of the the vendor dynamics of that. So obviously third stage comes in, kind of helps evaluate, understand needs, requirements, those types of things. And just does the vendor, the current vendor, the legacy vendor, do they know that you're doing that? Because I, I could assume that could get a little awkward sometimes when it's like, you know, we're considering not using your system anymore. I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, it's a good question. I actually don't know in this case for that particular client if that vendor knows. I've seen it both ways though, where uh, sometimes it's sort of an undercover, under the radar sort of assessment that you know you don't want to alarm anyone. Even sometimes you, it's not just the vendor you worry about; it's also the uh, uh, the people internally within your team, especially people that have a vested interest in seeing you continue with the current technology, just because it's what they're familiar with and what they know. Um, that's actually more of a concern. I'd say the, the internal employee dynamics is probably a bigger concern or it should be, but a lot of organizations to your point do worry about, well, I don't want my vendor to know. I don't want them to freak yeah. out. Well, in my opinion, it's easier said than done, or it's easy for me to say, it cause I'm a consultant. I'm not there to deal with the, you know, the realities of day-to-day -day operations for these companies. But to me, it doesn't matter what your vendor thinks. You just do what you need to do to be comfortable with whatever path you're going to take going forward. Um, the one thing I think you have to watch though, is when you, when your vendor does know, whether you, you tell them or they just find out through back channels, which they're very good at, by the way, uh, vendors are very good at being sneaky about not asking you directly, but they'll go mm -hmm. ask, you know, some frontline person that they right. have access to, you know, what's going on. Um, but one thing they'll do is they'll try to circumvent that process because the last thing they want you to do is to come to the conclusion that you shouldn't just upgrade or use their technology longer term. So they'll try to find a way and get, they'll get real creative about ways to come in and circumvent that process. So you just have to be prepared for that. If they do know, you just have to be ready, have the answers for why you don't want them to come in and, you know, give you a bunch of free software or give you a free assessment to show you how great their software is or to show you the new upgrades. Um, that might be part of your evaluation process longer term, but you don't necessarily need them to do that. Generally, you know, that's something that we do more agnostically or independently uh, without the sales spin. So um, anyway, that's, that's probably the biggest, those are probably the biggest considerations to think about. That's so interesting. And and do you feel like, I know you asked Brayden about kind of the SAP either transitioning or migrating from an SAP system or considering that SAP failures that we talk about a lot. Do you think that that trend is just because they're the biggest in the industry, arguably, and they get the most exposure? Or do you think it's just because there is more kind of competition now in the marketplace when these kind of mid two tier systems come in and um, make that uh, evaluation process, I guess, a bit more competitive. It, so is your question, why why is SAP more likely to be chosen by more I companies? Wonder, or why, I wonder, what? sorry, you know, my, my long winded questions that I'm so good at, but so I wonder if kind of SAP gets a bad rap sometimes because they're always in the 
well, we're switching from SAP and it tends to be high profile, more bigger client. Do you think it's because that is actually the trend in the industry is SAP is having trouble continuing to keep these clients because there's more just options? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, I think it wasn't the way you asked it. My mind was wandering to where I thought you were going to go, but that wasn't where you went. So then I got confused. But uh, the, the talk about it's more my attention span than it is your uh, long-winded questions. Um, but the, this is you know, the short people. answer. What's live that? TV. I said this right. is live TV, people. So we I don't, know we're not, we we're don't not give him the questions beforehand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think, I think you take, uh, just as a side note, I think you enjoy putting me on the spot and seeing how unprepared I can be for some of these questions. Um, no, but all seriousness, the, the SAP thing, I think, well, first of all, I think there's a dynamic that's interesting with SAP and that SAP and Oracle just as organizations seem to hate each other. Uh, Larry Ellison from Oracle loves to boast anytime a big account switches from SAP to Oracle. Um, so you hear about it. I don't know that SAP is quite as aggressive or um, vocal as Larry Ellison is in, in, uh, touting their wins. They'll, they'll do it at conferences and with industry analysts and stuff, but he just seems to be a little bit more, there's more bravado, I guess, with, with Larry Ellison, the way he gets it out. So I think that's that's part of it. Um, you just tend to hear about it because they're bigger companies and they're bigger wins. But I, I do think that um, you, you're onto something with your underlying question there, which is, you know, is it because, is it potentially because there's smaller or more mid-tier uh, options out there? And I think you're absolutely right. I think there's uh SAP's strength is that they have built this big, robust system that can scale for Fortune 500 companies, big, global, complicated companies. That's their strength, but it's also their weakness or their Achilles heel. They've created this big, massive, complicated system that sometimes is too complicated to where a lot of organizations say, you know what, that's just too much. Maybe we implement parts of SAP or and implement other technology to augment it, or maybe we just don't go with SAP and we go with a, you know, more of a, a right-sized solution that's a little bit more simplified or whatever. So I think it's probably a combination of both. Yeah. And that connective tissue of the best of breed, right? You yes, know, there it is again. There it is. Just bringing it in. But, um, and having that opportunity to do those things, it seems like that's becoming more of a streamlined approach through integrations and, and things like that. Um, as opposed to just one system that it's kind of like, this is what it does. Good luck. Change all of your processes to match it. Um, it seems like there's becoming more of, of that disruptor option in the industry. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, um, I think that brings me to kind of a, a different piece of feedback that I just wanted to share because it, it jogged my man memory when I was listening to a, a client conversation um, when we were having kind of a, a BD call with our executive team. They asked, you know, do you package our... Um, recommendations for two or three systems, or how do you know? Because there's so many systems in the marketplace. And um, on the fly, one of our, our other directors said uh, that we're actually working through today nine different systems within our our client reach. Um, so that kind of shows the ability to be agnostic and kind of what Braden was talking about in going through those selections or those those recommendations. So it just kind of perked my um my interest to kind of share that as a as a metric for this conversation so great stuff with with Braden though that is great stuff and uh yeah it's always good to have him on the show it won't be the last time you see him on here I'm, I'm sure we'll have him again soon uh to share more case studies because we actually had trouble deciding which ones to cover you know prior to the to the discussion so there's 
three, four, five more active clients that he's working with right now that we could we could easily dive into. But we'll we'll save that for next time. But in the meantime, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to get back to our or get to our third section or third segment of the podcast today, which is we're going to play you a clip from a recent interview uh, panel discussion that I had among with others. Uh, with a company called Flexential, and they're a, a cloud uh, hosting and data provider. We're going to talk about some of the nuances of, of moving to cloud solutions, uh, how to manage data, what the cloud really means, and what your options are, as well as how to manage that change in your organization. So we're going to play that clip for you, and then uh, Kyler and I will have some follow-up conversation after that. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And for our third segment here today, what we wanted to cover on today's episode is a panel discussion that we had with a another firm in the digital transformation space. It's a company called Flexential. And in that discussion, we talk about uh, cloud, um, data migration, hosting options for your digital transformation, as well as the change management nuances of, of migrating to the cloud. And so uh, what I thought we'd do is we just roll this clip and then we'll, we'll kind of unpack that a bit in some of the lessons from that clip uh, when we return. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I was part of that discussion, as was uh, Steve Foster, who's one of our executive advisors uh, to our company as well, but they'll do all the intros in the video clip here. So let's just cut to the clip and we'll go from there. Hi, I'm Steve Foster, and we're here today having a great conversation with a couple of great friends of mine. I've been in the tech industry in Colorado uh, for roughly 30 years now, Um, heavily engaged in software as a service and and software-related companies, some service companies, and... um, and I've been friends with these two guys for a very long period of time. So Eric, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Eric Kimberling and I'm the CEO of a company called Third Stage Consulting. And we help clients through their digital transformations. So we help clients select and implement their ERP software, whatever enterprise technologies they might be wanting to implement. We help them select the software and we also help with the organizational changes in the implementation as well. Hi, I'm Jason Carlin, Chief Innovation Officer with Flexential. We are a hybrid IT services and infrastructure provider. We build big data centers like the one that you see behind me, uh, operate in 20 markets across the, uh, the United States. And we all also offer uh, a network that uh, brings them all together as well as connectivity back into all the hyperscale platforms uh, that we call Flex Anywhere. Eric, making a, making a software selection for an ERP package is a big deal. Um, so what do companies need to think about? What are the top three to five things they need to consider when they're making this kind of a choice? Well, the first thing they need to do is is look at what their business strategy and objectives are and really understand the, the vision of the company and where they want to go and what they want to be when they grow up. 
and making sure that whatever technologies they evaluate, they do in the context of where they're headed as an organization. So that's the first thing is to identify what the strategic goals and objectives are and, and start to translate that into specific evaluation criteria that you would use to evaluate and select any sort of technology that you might deploy. The second thing is to look at your operations and understand what's working well, what's your secret sauce, and then what are the things that aren't working well that you'd like to improve either through efficiency gains or a better customer experience or whatever the case may be. And then I'd say the third thing that, that's important is to look at just the culture of the company and what kind of organization you are, what your people are like, and just what sort of environment you're operating in that can heavily influence the type of technology that, that makes the most sense for you. But I think the key is really to start at the top and look at your overall strategy and objectives and then kind of work your way down into what specific technologies are going to help me best get to where I want to go. There's a lot in that. So Jason, when you when you think about it from your chair and 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 at Flexential, companies have to make considerations relative to hosting as well, right? Whether they whether they do it on-prem, whether they go into AWS. There's a lot going into that choice. How, do, how does a CEO or a CIO, the technical executives, make that decision? What do they consider? Yeah, Steve, you're you're right. There's lots of lots of choices, anywhere from you know co-location and, and private cloud platforms that you see you know behind us, all the way to the the public cloud and to the hyperscalers and the SaaS platforms themselves that are operating um, the the ERP platform uh, on their own on their own. Um, we see a few different, you know, big areas there. One is is latency um, and and how the network plays into that is is a big piece. I think as more and more applications become real time, um, supporting you know real time manufacturing, smart manufacturing, IoT, smart devices, the network really matters. Um, which means you know sometimes you want that platform very close to your end users or in your end facility. Uh, security and compliance is another big piece. Um, I do like the joke. It's a little bit hard to send your auditor to. Uh, a hyperscale data center like Amazon, right? So you kind of, you gotta be happy with really what you get from them, which you know a lot of people are. But frankly, almost every, every customer is in this multi-cloud journey of trying to really mix and match different technologies together and being able to find kind of that right solution in the right place and, and, and for the right price because cost management and, and just even keeping up with the complexity of costs is another uh, big consideration as well as just integration you know, as a whole. As you think about many applications have so many different dependencies that you know it's very common where somebody moved an application to a, a hyperscale cloud platform and then had had to open up all these different things that they didn't even know that they had to open up so lots of different considerations for sure yeah so eric when when that choice is made that's the first step then implementation has to be considered so a what goes into um, implementing an application of that size in a business and and does that something that third stage helps out with yeah, it is something that Third Stage helps out with uh, throughout the, the implementation. And I'd say the place to start is to really define what that future state operating model needs to be or what you want it to be, and really let your business drive how you're going to deploy technology uh, to the business. It's, it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of just saying, we're not going to worry about our future state. We're just going to roll out the technology and let the technology tell us how to run our business. But it's that leads to a lot of trouble where you just don't have a clear vision and clear governance governance around how to deploy the technology. So having that, that future state operating model is important. Um, certainly defining what your architecture is and how you're going to host the solution. Are you going to host it yourself? Are you going to 
use someone like an, like an AWS, like one of those big box providers or, you know, a, a company like Flexential that's a little bit more uh, targeted and, and focused. Um, whatever the case may be, you want to figure out what your architecture and infrastructure strategy is. And then probably most importantly, arguably most importantly, is the, the organizational change strategy. So how are you going to ensure that you're not just changing processes, putting in new technology, but ultimately getting people to behave differently? And for a lot of technologies, even just with cloud and moving your systems out of your own four walls, that's a pretty big cultural shift for a lot of companies. When you just look at an IT department at the average company, that's a big change to take away their infrastructure and move it somewhere else. So you've got to kind of help them through that migration. And then there's obviously the operational frontline users or the people that are delivering your product or service and dealing with your customers and closing the books and doing all those other important processes. You've got to help them through that journey as well to make sure that they're getting the most value out of the investment that you're making in, in new technology. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll pick up this conversation when we return for more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we're here playing a, a clip of a panel discussion that we had regarding cloud and data migration, hosting options, uh, change management considerations as it relates to cloud digital transformation. So let's just jump right back to the conversation. Jason, once once the decision is made and, and implementation starts, what what help can Flexential bring to the table relative to the infrastructure, it, it, either in the cloud, on-prem, how, how do you guys step in? How does Flexential join in that implementation process? Well, one, we, we do like to say we kind of work beyond the four walls, right? So I think it's being able to understand how the public cloud and the hyperscaler technology fit into a customer's roadmap. You mentioned architecture, Eric. I think that's you know where we would start as well, which is you know creating really a roadmap to say, look, from, from here to there, this is how we need to, to work through this because it does take you know, it takes longer than anybody anticipates, right? And um, security considerations, disaster recovery, business continuity, especially as we've learned over the course of the last couple of quarters that it's really important for us to have those um, uh, use cases understood as well. So really road mapping that out with the customer. We do that with our solution architecture uh, team as well as our professional services engineering team um, that can get into, you know, not only the high level uh, plan, but down into, you know, what are the applications, what are their dependencies, what are their performance requirements, network requirements, security requirements, and really put together that plan for, for the customer. Eric, when we talk about ERP systems, it's usually for larger organizations or organizations that are growing. Can you talk a little bit about growth strategy, scalability? How do you think about that? And how do you help organizations think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and every company has a different 
a different definition of scale. And a lot of it comes down to how you define scale as far as what is it that is fueling your growth. So for the average company that say is, is looking for operational efficiency and they're really trying to drive cost out of their operations, scale to them is going to mean let's get a solution that will help drive down costs so that we can use that money to invest elsewhere and, and really grow the company. Some companies are scaling or growing by being flexible and providing you know, better customer service and a better customer experience better than their competitors can. Other organizations, it could be focusing on their talent management and really focusing on building those competencies and managing they, their HR function better than others. And it's not just one or the other, it, it could be a combination of those things or even other things we haven't talked about. So there is no, I, w- I would say there's not a universal definition of scale other than when you're talking about technology in particular, a lot of times people think of how many transactions can I complete or how much volume can I transact through my system? When I think of scale, I think of that, but I also think more importantly about the organization itself and how how does your operation scale? How does your organization scale? How do you provide that better customer experience? And really overall, what's gonna drive that growth to get you to where you wanna go? Scalability and, and growth is not just in the application in the business, it's in the infrastructure. So how do you think about that from the standpoint of future pro- future proofing their IT, you know, how do you think about it from from an infrastructure company? Well, future proofing sort of is the holy the holy grail. You mentioned governance uh, before too. I think it starts there, right? It starts with, you know, if I can go create a model, um, you know, regardless of what of the technology set that that allows me to understand agility and ongoing optimization. I think that's where it starts, and uh, and then being able to be nimble and and fast. You know, you hear infrastructure as code now, right? So the idea of of being able to kind of reprogram and, and repurpose um, platforms very, very quickly certainly is, is the key to agility. But you know, ultimately, an enterprise might have hundreds of applications. They're all in some different state. So governance really is the is the key to sort of like, how do we put the guardrails together to be able to successfully operate this over time? Partnerships like this are great. Um, and, and we've asked some good questions, but what didn't we ask? What are the one or two things that you would advise your clients to think about and, and Jason, I would ask you the same thing. What are, what are the one or two things as, as organizations make these decisions, not only in what they're gonna select and how they're gonna scale it, but who their partners should be and what those partners could look like and what they bring to the table. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So I, I'd start with really finding the partners that have the best cultural fit with who you are. I mean, a lot of times companies will buy a product or service that they think sounds good on paper, but just culturally, it's just not a good good match with, with the organization either because, you know, the provider is too big and they're not getting the attention they want or deserve, or it could be a number of other reasons. The other thing too, is to really recognize that when a, when a software vendor, or any sort of technology provider is trying to sell you on, on their services, usually it's, it's pretty biased. They're, they're trying to sell you the, on the strengths. And so it's important to recognize that you're getting one answer or one option, you know, from from the different sales reps you might be talking to. And a good example is when you go to buy software nowadays, especially if it's a cloud solution or something you want to host in the cloud, a lot of times software vendors will push you to use their hosting provider and say, hey, you know, we've got this application, we've got a data center, use our hosting service, but you as the customer have the option to go shop around and see, is that the right fit for me? Or do I want to host it somewhere else? What am I gonna do with my other applications that that vendor doesn't support? So those are the, the kinds of things that people need to think through. And, and when you're reaching out to the average software or technology sales rep, you're not going to hear that. So it's just important to really back up and look at the fact or acknowledge the fact that you're the customer, you make this decision, 
and really kind of cut through the, the sales messaging and really do what's best for your organization. What are your thoughts on that, Jason? Well, uh, having been a consultant probably for half my IT career, I think uh, it depends is always my favorite my favorite answer. Um, but sort of to your to your point, the one size fits all and in, in working with with partners that already have those preconceived notions before we even understand the requirements or what you know mm-hmm. w- what situation the customer or their partners might be in always scare me, right? Because I think they're they're coming to the table with something that's been already off the truck and they just rinse and repeat, right? Versus I think, you know, frankly, digging in and trying to understand what, um, you know, what the scenario is both today and, and where it's going to lead tomorrow, I think is the best outcome for the customer with really great partners that can do that. Yeah. Sitting in the CEO's chair or the CIO's chair, um, important decisions have to be made. More and more technology is enabling businesses, bringing businesses to a better level, a bigger level, scalability, all these issues that we're talking about. There's other things that we have to think about, right? There's cultural alignment. Does the, does the organization understand how we're getting from here to there and the investment that they're making in this um, selection process? How would you advise the executive team? How would you help the CIO um, inform the executive team around this kind of a decision and the impact of a decision like this? relative to um, implementing a very large scale ERP system. So Eric, why don't you give us a, give us your thoughts on that? Well, there's a, there's a lot there that, that needs to be addressed. I mean, first of all, you have the, the overall alignment and just making sure that the executive team is aligned and making sure that they understand when they're not aligned. And right. alignment's a nebulous term. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. But when we think of alignment, we think, are you on the same page with how difficult this transformation is going to be or how much money it's going to take or what kind of operational changes you're willing to take on. A lot of times the CIO comes in with a transformation or a software implementation and executives say, okay, that sounds great, go do it. And the CIO will try to do it, but then the executive team's not aligned on what does this really mean to the to the business. Right. So really defining what just what does this transformation mean? What do we expect to get out of it? How much is it gonna cost? What kind of pain are we willing to go through or not? And all that good stuff. And along those same lines is even though the CIO should be at the board level and is obviously an important executive within most organizations, it shouldn't be a technology driven process. It should be an operations or business driven process. And the technology should enable the broader business transformation goals. And that's an important shift because CIOs oftentimes end up with a bullseye on them because executives say, okay, we approved it. We gave you the money and I'll go do it. And now you failed because we weren't aligned, but it's still your fault because it was an IT project. Right. So you really need to get a partner within the business that can help take some of that pressure off you, if anything, just for your own career longevity, if anything, not to mention the fact that it's a, it's an important to the success for the organization. Yeah, so setting expectations and helping them understand and how to set expectations at the executive level and the board level on this decision and, and carrying them through that process right. from beginning to end. And it's no different from an infrastructure perspective. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll pick up this conversation when we return for more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, 
Our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we're here playing a, a clip of a panel discussion that we had regarding cloud and data migration, hosting options, uh, change management considerations as it relates to cloud digital transformation. So let's just jump right back to the conversation. You got to have the right infrastructure partner so that the business can think about these things long term. So how do you guys set that table for the executive team, the board, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 you know. The, the partnership and having you know really that partner at the table that's right. that's probably willing to um, you know there's an existing set of processes that are going to have to change you know how much can you get kind of out of out of the box versus having to do a bunch of customization right I think that's that's an area that uh, in terms of a lot of, of projects that we've done and, and and with our customers is how do you get some bang for the buck with the platform right rather than having to go reinvent the wheel every single time short small wins you know being able to fail fast you know is, right. is is critical but i think that strong who else is at the table at the board level or the or the c-suite level that you can really count on because you know average lifespan of a cio is what two years and, and i would say in a project especially looking at erp it's such a big you know it's the crown jewels right and um it's going to really take that strong partnership of everybody working together it's not just a cio that's going to make it successful or, or not it's a long tail Right, uh, relative to an ERP implementation, uh, change management is really misunderstood and not really anticipated at a very high level. And and how do you drive value long term for that investment? Right. So do you hang around? I mean, are you there for your partners long term? And I would ask that of both of you. I mean, I'm sure from an infrastructure perspective, if they have an engagement with you to host this um, this software, but. How do you help them with that long tail of impact and driving value um, out of the business? Well, first I'd say, I hope Jason's there for the long term because <laughs> if he's not there, there's no, uh, right. there's no infrastructure right, right, right. to support the systems. But yeah, I'd say our company does stay involved up through the implementation and even post implementation because a lot of times companies will get to that, call it the soft finish line of the go live. They, they implement the new technologies, but usually there's something missing. You haven't. Right implemented all the modules, you haven't gotten all the value you could be getting out of it. Maybe there's another upgrade or a new version of the software that you could be deploying. So it really becomes more of a continuous journey. You know, you might have a soft finish line, but you're not done. You've got to keep, you've got to keep on it. And a lot of times companies think that with the appeal of, of cloud and especially software as a service types of technologies where the updates are automatic, they think, okay, well then we're done. The software vendor is just going to roll out or push out right. the changes and that's it. But the reality is you, even if that is true, you've got to align your business with those new processes and help people through the changes. And it's more of a continuous journey once you get past that that go live. One other thing that you mentioned that, that I wanted to come back to is just the one of the big cultural changes that happens in these sorts of transformations is from an executive level, you get the executives and the other stakeholders in the company that become sort of conditioned over time to get whatever they want out of their technology. They can just go ask the IT guy or gal, hey, you know, create this report for me or make this change to the system. 
And then you move to this cloud environment where you've got commercial off-the-shelf software and maybe software as a service where you're pretty standardized in your in your processes, and you suddenly don't have that same level of control and mm-hmm. ability to change the technology. So that's a really big, when we talk about misalignment, that's a big misalignment in the expectations between IT and, and the rest of the business. So that's something that needs to be navigated as well. Jason, uh, you know, I think of this in three areas. I think of it as adoption, engagement, and performance. Um, do you guys, I mean, and I'm, I'm asking because I don't know, because this is curious to me. Um, do you guys help relative to the performance um, as, you, as you begin to work with that partner long-term uh, with managing that asset for them? Definitely. I mean, I would say 80% of our customers um, utilize ongoing management services from us, right? So we're, we're very much 24 by 7 operations. In fact, I, I joke to a lot of our bigger customers, if you're not talking to us on a, a pretty continuous basis, then something's not going to go right, right? So we're really a partner with them. We're augmenting their team. They might have some great database architects and engineers, but you know, we have a whole fleet that can do it, you know, 24 by seven, right? So it's really about that ongoing partnership with the, with the customer and looking at performance of the platform. I mean, I, we just did our, our, um, our, our new implementation of ERP. And I would say for the first month had, you know, performance issues that we had to go figure out. Right? Right. So it's, it's, I think very common in the early days of any of these big projects that you've got to go sort through that and need a partner that can be there both architecturally, you know, at the front end, because maybe something's not quite right there, or maybe it's with the implementation. Yeah. And that's where most of the value is too, because you spend however much time and money you spend getting to the go live and just getting the changes and the system and the new processes rolled out. But just that incremental little bit you do after the finish line to say, mm-hmm. okay, now we're gonna optimize and we're gonna make sure we tweak the way we deployed it. That's where you get the most value. And Absolutely. That's where you, but, but a lot of companies will just stop and say, okay, we're done. Let's go back to our day jobs. And they, they leave a ton of value on the table after spending all that time and money. They're not getting the ROI right. that they should have gotten. Implementation fatigue. You have to walk them through it, right? Because it's a, it's it's a, a big deal. Yeah. It's a real thing. Especially right? for you know, projects that might take two years. Everybody's like, yeah. okay, we're done. Yeah. 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 Can we move not. on to something else? <laughs> that's right? really just the, the new beginning, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate that. Eric, big scary word, change management. Right. Um, you know, a lot of folks, they want the best performance out of this selection that they've made for the business to be successful. Um, but change management's big. Right. So how do you think about that? How do you coach and are you there to help them get through an implementation like this from a change management perspective? Because that could be where it all fails. Right? right. The infrastructure could be great. The software could perform. But change management is scary. How do you help them through that? Yeah, and it's an area that's near and dear to my heart. That's where I started my career was as a change management consultant for big ERP projects. And so I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly from an organizational perspective. And it's probably easiest to start with what it's not. Change management is not training. You know, it's not training how to use a new system. It's not just that last couple of weeks before a go live. There's a lot more that should be happening before that. But most companies fail to realize that, that there's a lot of definition of roles and responsibilities. Usually technology results in changes to people's jobs. And so we've got to define what that means because you could build a system that does all these great things, but it's totally off track with what the people are doing, the way their jobs are designed. And so you've got to bring those two things together to say, okay, well, we're either going to have to change the people and change their job roles and responsibilities to adapt to the software or vice versa, or maybe it's some combination of both. So that organizational design piece is very important. You also want to look at the culture. Are you trying to bend your culture to be more disciplined or more customer centric or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish as an organization? 
generally translates to some sort of behavioral change you're looking for from your people. And again, you can slam in all the technology you want. It's not going to matter if people aren't thinking the way you need them to think. So there's a cultural uh, component that, that goes along with that. And, and probably the easiest way to summarize how we go about this is we'll do early in an evaluation process and continuing through the implementation, we'll do a series of organizational readiness assessments and really just analyzing where are those pitfalls and organizational points of resistance and let's anticipate those before they become a problem. Um, a good example is, you know, we'll talk to clients a lot of times we'll say, change management's not gonna be hard because our people are ready for the change. They hate these old systems that we use and they're ready for the change. And that's probably true. You know, most people aren't lying when they say that, they probably are ready for the change. But where the challenge comes is once you get below the tip of the iceberg and start to define what the changes are, uh, it might be that Jason, you know, that spreadsheet you created 20 years ago that you've been managing yourself right. for 20 years, I'm gonna take that away from you now and put right. it in a new technology. <laughs> And I haven't figured out yet what you're going to do with your time. Spreadsheet. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> but don't worry about it. You know, right. we're just going well, so to. You're, you're, you're kind of affecting people's jobs, right? And which yeah. is which is definitely a big deal. Yeah. 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 So that okay. that level of assessment, change impact, and really just understanding how people will likely resist the change because they will resist it. They may not seem like it now, and it's not that they mean to sabotage the project or they don't want to change deep down. But it suddenly becomes personal when I take away Jason's spreadsheet, and all of a sudden he starts wondering, "What am I going right. to do with my time?" and so we've got to figure out, well, what is he going to do with this time? First of all, I mean, are we going to give him new responsibilities? Are we going to move him to a different department? And those are hard conversations. And that's the kind of stuff that holds up. And you can't always have those people involved at the front end, right? There's some that you can as sort of key yeah. users, but then you, you, you'll have everybody at some point involved, which is just not scalable. So, yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll pick up this conversation when we return for more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and we're here playing a, a clip of a panel discussion that we had regarding cloud and data migration, hosting options, uh, change management considerations as it relates to cloud digital transformation. So let's just jump right back to the conversation. Yeah. How, how does how does Flexential address that from the standpoint of being, you know, because you're not in proximity. You're, I mean, you're managing the software potentially in your facility, or you're or you're managing in the cloud for them, or however you do that. How do you how do you help organizations address the issue of change management? Well, we like to be involved up front, right? So we, right. we, we probably have, you know, out of, out of uh, roughly a thousand people, we have maybe a hundred architects, right? So being able to go and engage, you know, up front in a, in a, in a partnership and an engagement um, to sort of set that stage and be, right. you know, involved really as, as much into the front of the process as possible, because I think we've all been in scenarios where, okay, this is what I need. And you're given the parts list and you're like, well, I don't, 
I, you know, I have no idea what the intent of this parts list might actually be. So we'd rather be a seat at the table and really help figuring that out with the customer. And, and then we can, frankly, it's easier for us then to pivot if we see something, well, look, we, we undersize this platform over here. We've got to do an upgrade there. Being able to be a bit more nimble because we have a lot more context of what's actually going on. Fantastic. Yeah. What about the organizational impact of the IT departments? Do you, do you guys see that often where now you're kind of moving the infrastructure out of their four walls into your facilities and then what do you do with the IT department from there? Yeah, I mean, it's the server hugger, you know, mentalities definitely have, have some of that. And, you know, I think the good thing is we can, we can, you know, if they want to use co-location, we can still allow them to go hug their servers because they can come into the data center and hug their servers, right? So if they're, if they're looking more for a private cloud solution because they want to really shift from a, a CapEx to more of an OpEx play, then um, really it is about augmenting that team. And, and frankly, to your point about the spreadsheet, you know, they probably have other other things as they look at their maturity cycle that they want to get to so they can offload some of the the day-to-day to us or offload some of the project work to us and, and they can really start to innovate kind of in different areas yeah i would see it would be a, an exercise of you know the lower value things that they do push that down into the mm-hmm. technology and the higher value things they can work on strategically across the organization exactly like security i mean security right. and vulnerability management right now is like you just can't have enough resources to go right to go work on that and that's you know that's a big right. area of, of investment yeah organizations like to do things themselves right they want to they want to give their talent a chance to show off if you will um, and this is a hard thing and this is a really difficult um, choice to make um, why wouldn't you want to just do this yourself you know why would i seek out not only a relationship with a company like Third Stage, but find out what partnerships you have and, and you have to help me get from start to finish and beyond. Well, I, I would argue that you, you would want to go find a partner simply because most organizations don't do this for a living every day. And you know, you may have a couple people on your staff or a few people that have been through it once before or maybe twice before, but there's no substitute for that volume of experience and those lessons learned. And, Quite candidly, I've made and seen a lot of mistakes in in implementations over the years, and you'd rather hire someone like me or our company who has made a lot of those mistakes already and won't repeat them on your dime. So that's probably the biggest reason, especially because these these transformations and these implementations are so risky. I mean, the the downside, if you mess it up, isn't just that you spent a little bit more time and money than you expected on the implementation, although that is a real risk. The bigger risk is what happens on the other side. You know, are you able to ship product? Are you able to close the books? Right. And too often, you know, it's about, you know, according to our research, it's a little over half the time, companies have some sort of material operational disruption where they can't ship product, yeah. they can't close the books, whatever the Right, they can't be. do their day job. Right. Right, because they, they, they got in the way and the board didn't understand we're making these, we're making these um, investments in IT and you know why are we bringing other folks to do this i think it's a big accountability factor too and i i you know we i used to call it torpedo management right there's always something happening somewhere that's going to take you off your your whatever your day is especially in the world of ops um and and typically in in a company the the people that are trying to do implementation like this they're they're operational people so their torpedo management torpedoes are everywhere so I think it drives some level of accountability too, because you can really say to your partner, like, look, hey, we got to get this done. We got to be able to ship product. How do you drive that accountability? And, you know, frankly, take a little bit of the focus off the internal team so they can still do some of the things they need to do, but still drive accountability to get the project done. Yeah, yeah these partnerships make sense to me because I'm, you know, I am a pretty agnostic person when it comes to trying to figure out what my business needs because I want it to fit what I'm trying to do for my customers. Um, so how, how would you talk about 
you know, when you when you're looking for the right relationship, right? Because this is what this is. It's a relationship. Um, how, do, how do you look for those relationships that that the partner that you're picking has that can help you think about this in total in, in totality? Right. Because there may be other organizations that will sell you um, an ERP system, ERP software, but they're going to give you um, the responsibility of understanding what that means to your infrastructure. Right. So how do you how do you coach um, CEOs and CIOs and the board around the relationships that you formed? Well, you know, the of value to us, because we're independent and technology agnostic, we tend to value partnerships and relationships that are also technology agnostic. And part of the reason why we like working with Flexential is because they're not just an SAP shop or an Oracle shop or whatever, pick a technology and insert it here. They, they do a wide variety of different uh, types of, of systems and applications that they can host. And the other part of it too is that uh, they obviously have some breadth and scale of capability and some depth in a number of different areas. So that's just one example. But in general, you know, we tend to value partnerships that are agnostic and certainly you want to be doing what's right for the customer. I mean, we, we tend to be disruptors in the industry because we're kind of challenging the status quo of that vendor driven model of, you know, feeding you biased sales and marketing info and then hiring industry analysts to spit out that same biased info, hiring a bunch of consultants to go out and, you know, be an army of marketers for your your product whereas we come in and say we don't care about the technology we care about you client the business and let's figure out which of these options out here in the marketplace work so that that agnostic view of the world is probably the most important thing for us as well as you know cultural fit and just general skills and capabilities as well what's your guys' approach well that's all i think you hit on it it's it's trust right it's being right. able to call you know eric up and say hey you know i think on behalf of this customer we we've, we've got to go revisit this or we got to look at this i think that's I think ultimately, if a, if a customer you know is going to go and engage you know on a project that is this big, right, having that relationship and trust factor across the principles that are involved, or is really you know the key the key to success, frankly. Well, and having you both at the seat, having a seat at the table at the onset, right, right exactly. up front, um, eliminates that issue or concern about connectedness relative to the completion of the project, right, and 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 really getting into and having skin in the game for outcomes. Right. For where you want to go. Long and I think it's that mindset too. the approach, you know, the commonality around your approach and our approach and, and being more best of breed and not coming to the table with a bunch of foregone, you know, pre preconceived uh, notions that and really trying to listen to the customer and figure out where they're where they're headed. Yeah. Eric, Jason, appreciate it. This was great. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and sharing this information. Yep. Thanks for having us. All right. Good stuff. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. A lot of good lessons learned and uh, some closing thoughts that Kyler and I have for you. So we'll take a quick break and we'll unpack those things here when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm all right today. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling and uh, Kyler, we just had this uh, panel discussion that we played. What were some of your thoughts or observations or questions coming out of that discussion about cloud and data migration and hosting and all that, all that good stuff as it relates to cloud transformations? Yeah, I kind of just want to set the scene for our listeners of what Flex Essential looks like. So it's this huge, beautiful warehouse of all of these um, data hosting machines. That's basically what it looks like is it's, you know, um, a, a massive facility. So I wondered if you could kind of start by explaining the partnership between helping our clients figure out how to host data, whether it's a cloud solution or on-premise or, or what that looks like. Yeah. You know, one of the big takeaways from that discussion and the reason we wanted to have it on this episode or to play that clip on this episode was to help jog people's memories or get the wheels turning on how you can be thinking about cloud transformations. A lot of times companies don't understand their full suite of options. They they go to say an SAP or an Oracle, Microsoft or whoever, whoever your technology provider is and say, I want your cloud solution. And they say, great, uh, we have our own hosting, uh, our own way of hosting that we're going to uh, deliver it on or we have a hosting provider like AWS or uh, Azure in the case of Microsoft, and that's going to be the hosting provider. That's our partner, and that's going to be included in our in our proposal. And uh, that's okay, but that's not your only option. Uh, vendors will oftentimes make you feel like that's your only option, largely because it all comes back to money. Um, they're making money on suggesting that is your one option. But the reality is, is you're you're the one buying the software in many cases, as long as it's not a SaaS solution. If it's multi-tenant software as a service, like a NetSuite or a Salesforce or Workday type of solution, then yes, you're sort of stuck with, for, for better or for worse, you're stuck with the hosting provider that that vendor has or provides. But if you're doing really more of a hybrid where you're you're buying the software, but you're having someone else host it, but it's still sort of your instance of the software, then you can have whoever you want host it. Um, and a lot of times organizations don't realize that. So I think that was the big thing or the big takeaway from or the, the big takeaway that I hope people will take away from, from that conversation as it relates to that. Absolutely. So in that hybrid IT and kind of data, data center option, is that for anyone? Um, like say you had a company that Flexential, for example, is based here in the Denver area in the United States, but can you host that data with Flexential or another partner, no matter where you are? Well, that's a good question. Within the country, typically, yes. Um, so, you know, Flexential, for example, they do have that big data center that we actually recorded that segment uh, here in Denver, uh, which was beautiful, by the way. It's really, it's always fascinating to see those big data centers, especially when they start rattling off the, the companies that they're hosting data for, who we, we can't reveal for confidentiality reasons, but they're massive companies that are just sitting in this little, you know, little little part of the, the hosting center there. But you know, they, they have other hosting centers throughout the country. Now, now the reason I say within the country, typically, yes, but not necessarily out of the country is a lot of times government regulations will prevent where data can reside. So, you know, for example, you know, in the United States, if you're a government contractor or a government entity, you know, it's, it's either frowned upon and or illegal to uh, host that uh, sensitive data in other countries, especially if it's an adversary um, of that country. So in the case of the United States, China, there's a lot of tension between the U.S. and China. So it's generally frowned upon. It may even be illegal. I'm not sure um, to, host, um, to host that data 
in China, or and I think it applies to other countries as well, not just China. But um, so anyway, that's that's and every country has its own rules and regulations and that sort of thing. But but I guess conceptually, yes, you could theoretically you can host that. You don't have to be physically where the hosting center is. It in fact it actually can help you diversify and mitigate risk by having it somewhere else because that it's more protected. And if you're in a high risk area with monsoons or hurricanes or whatever, you don't have to worry about the data center being damaged. Right. And then, you know, building on kind of that risk mitigation, when it comes to cybersecurity and its relationship to these data center or hybrid IT options, is that a more secure option typically for say a company that maybe doesn't have the infrastructure for cybersecurity initiatives? Would that be something that would help them kind of in that um, decision-making factor? Yeah, typically, you know, these big hosting providers have world-class security because that's their whole business is to focus on hosting data in a secure way. So that's that's all they do. So, you know, uh, for the most part, those hosting providers provide better security protocols than what the average, you know, mom and pop organization might be able to do with their internal IT department. Yeah, definitely. I felt like when we went in there to do the video production, we had to kind of like sign in blood, you know, to yeah. get through the door. <laughs> we didn't I actually didn't... have to do that, but it was very, it was very, it was a tight ship. So, um, well, and I got um, lost going there too, by the way, I, I had the address, oh, I yeah. couldn't find it. So it was, and yeah. I think that was by design. It was very hard to find where the data center was. I knew I was kind of close, but I, I, it took me a while to find, I had to call you in fact, to, to find where, to figure out where to go. Cause you were, you were ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then when it comes to, we kind of talked about the human side of data hosting or what that means from the data process management side and organizational change. We talked about what that looks like from bringing your data to a hosting center as opposed to having it on site and what that looks like for the, the people side, like we said. And I wondered if you could kind of elaborate on that, um, that data sounds like kind of a hard, really rigid strategy, but there are still human aspects to it. And what are some considerations for companies looking to kind of build out their data strategies? Well, I think the unintended benefit of moving your data to the cloud is that it forces you to, first of all, figure out where your data is and what kind of state it's in. I mean, cause you have to, to get it, you know, moved over to a third party, you have to clean it up. You have to figure out where it all is and you have to cleanse it and, and then ultimately migrate it. So the, the unintended benefit is that it forces you to really pick, pick up the pieces and put it all together, clean it up and move it over, uh, to a day, uh, to a hosting provider. The other benefit is once you've done that, now you have more centralized, um, data management, which means it's, things like analytics and machine learning, artificial intelligence, and some of those emerging technologies that we're all intrigued by becomes more of a possibility because now you actually have the data cleaned up and in a place where you can, you can manage it. So those are, you know, some of the unintended uh, benefits, but I think in general, um, you know, the dark side is that a lot of organizations struggle with letting go, especially the internal IT department or the people that are used to sort of having complete control and visibility or, uh, just the comfort of knowing that it's sitting on my machine or sitting on my server in the back or whatever. There's just a psychological comfort that comes along with that, even though I would say it's not necessarily a rational psychological comfort because rationally it's probably safer that someone else is hosting and someone that knows what they're doing or 
has a better understanding of how to how to protect that data. So there is a change management piece as well that I think a lot of organizations underestimate. Yeah, like that sparkly data that our our um, Stonehenge people helped us understand kind of those different tiers. Flux Essential would kind of be, you know, on the, the huge end of that side of saying, you know, they're they really have a, a very sophisticated operation um, as well. So um, it was great to hear from from Jason Carolyn, who's, you know, their CIO over at um, Flux Essential and Steve Foster, who's a, a great friend and advisor here at Third Stage as well. Um, so definitely um, check them both out on um, Twitter and Instagram as they have some great um, content out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good, good company. And it's just, a, again, a good reminder that you have hosting providers. There's a lot of really solid mid-tier providers like uh, Flexential. Uh, a few weeks ago, actually twice within the last few months, we've had Brad Feeks from a company called Estes Group on this podcast. He's part of another organization called Estes Group that does manage services and hosting. So those are just two examples of those those mid-tier organizations that have a really solid footprint, know what they're doing. They're not Amazon Web Services. They're not Azure. Uh, they're not as well known, but they can provide a really solid uh, offering that could be a good hybrid for companies that maybe aren't completely set on going full on cloud yet, but they want to start making that migration. That can be a great option for you. So uh, yeah, so that was a, a great episode. Thank you uh, for all the great uh, questions and topics for us to cover here, Kyler. Appreciate having you on as always. And appreciate the audience listening in. And I appreciate the audience listening in as always. And I also appreciate my ability to not uh, stumble my words as much as I have been today. Uh, maybe next episode will be a little cleaner. Uh, but thanks for listening in to today's episode. Every Wednesday, we have new episodes. Be sure to check us out on YouTube, on all the usual podcast audio platforms as well. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. So hope you all have a great week and we will see you all soon. Take care. Thank you.